Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Happy Friday, boys. I was boys. listening to that and, and thinking to myself, man, I, I wonder if Rowan's triggered by the, in, the inflation out of control, the collapse of the U.S. dollar. We'll probably get into some of that. Um, oh, anyways, cheers, guys. Welcome to Friday cheers. afternoon. Um, Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Welcome, uh, Rowan. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Um, Rowan, Mike, go ahead and... Ro- Rowan Gray, what a handle, too. That's a solid handle. That feels like it's out of some sort of you know, one of those uh, historical fiction Dracula type. Well, as long, as, long as you're not calling it, you know, Riders of Rohan, then you're better than most of my <laughs> high school bullies. So. Oh, too good. That's too a good, good reference, though. There's that's, that's definitely nothing uh, to uh, frown upon. No, no. The, uh, so, and just a reminder to everybody that this conversation is for educational and entertainment purposes, not investment advice in any way, shape, or form. If you need investment advice, Four o'clock Friday on YouTube. Not sure that that's the place you should look. But anyway, with that, I will turn it over to you gentlemen and get this thing rolling. All right, cool. So yeah, so we've got Ron Gray on the show. I've been really excited uh, for weeks to have this conversation. So Rowan, thanks so much for joining us. Um, maybe for the benefit of those who are less familiar with you, love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're currently up to. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a law professor in Oregon at the University of Willamette in, in Salem. I teach contracts, business organizations, securities regulation, and a uh, course on law, money, and technology. 
Uh, I was previously an attorney working in family court representing children in custody and visitation, where I like to joke I never litigated a single dollar. Uh, we did other kinds of issues, but never money. Uh, and before that, I was a, a music teacher uh, before law school. So different hats, but nowadays it's money and finance with a particular focus on digital money and, and particularly digital public money. Uh, and I work on various pieces of legislation, look at macroeconomic issues, looking at banking and, and the budget and uh, related issues in employment, distribution of wealth, things like that. So help, help me sort of connect the dots, because how do you go from sort of music teacher and child advocate, et cetera, into economics and monetary policy? Yeah, I mean, I came of sort of adult age around the, the global financial crisis. And obviously, that was a pretty big moment to, to be looking out and seeing how, how much people's lives and the entire kind of system that we had grown up with was, was being kind of undermined or challenged. And then I think part of it was um, austerity becoming the dominant framework. You know, I came to the United States in January 2009. I was, I was in D.C. with a friend for Obama's inauguration. And to see this moment where we kind of had a a Great Depression equivalent, and, and instead of talking about New Deal and jobs programs and revitalizing the economy and, you know, God forbid, doing something about climate change, the conversation was dominated by austerity and balanced budgets and the national debt. And that was a pretty confronting kind of moment to see how, how what should have been a, a kind of progressive turn or could have been a progressive turn was, was wasted. Um, I also, when I moved over here, did a semester on exchange. That was my, my ticket into the United States uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, um, where a lot of my friends there were, were at Wharton Business School and ended up working on Wall Street. So when I was a music teacher in New York at a, a, a school in Harlem and uh, dealing with all of the you know, chronic underfunding and the intergenerational effects of poverty and systemic racism and things, a lot of my colleagues were downtown uh, and, and working in you know the buildings that were financing these schools or, or not financing them, so, depending on the case may be. And I would talk a lot with them about these issues, and it kind of became clear that if you didn't really understand the money or finance, then a lot of you know any any progressive or sentiments would always be dismissed or discounted as being kind of sentimentalist um, rather than kind of informed by a realistic understanding of the world. And I had gone through before I left Australia the experience of, of, of a school that had a very good music program. You know, I, in another world, I'd still be teaching music to kids. Um, uh, and, and to see that program essentially die in a short period of time due to, uh, you know, global economic events that caused austerity, um, that, that caused underfunding. So if you start from the idea that there are things that we should be providing all children in the world because it's good and we kind of at a larger level of wealth collectively than we've ever had in the world and to start to ask why don't we do something about that, why can't we do something? The first line of defense you often hear is, well, you know, you don't understand economics and where are you going to get the money, et cetera. And caring enough about those issues to really follow that all the way through. And I think in terms of the understanding, the sort of framework, I had followed a lot of blogs and, and webs, you know, um, people writing online and things. When you move to a new country, you don't know that many people, you find yourself a lot of free time to do a lot of reading. Uh, and this was in the glory days of the old RSS feed, you know, blog, blogosphere wars of the early 2010s, when you could sort of have anybody put up these great arguments and back and forth, and you'd read all the comments section. And at that point, I had studied political economy at the University of Sydney, which was a pretty famous heterodox program, um, did a lot of political economy, not just the standard sort of neoclassical micro econ. Uh, and at that time, I had, you know, the joke at the school was, well, it's not as rigorous. The, the real economics is next door with all the math and we're doing something sort of much less rigorous. But as I came to read more about it and understand it and realize that a lot of that math was 
was very frail, um, actually. The, the, the suppositions, the, the, the kind of underlying framework was, was very underdeveloped and certainly not consistent with my understanding even then of the law. Um, and then, then that political economy that looked kind of weak or, or soft or vague actually looked a lot more coherent and rigorous than the alternative over time. And uh, I sort of followed a lot of these debates and started reading some of the MMT blogs. And over time, I just said, you know, these guys are sounding pretty persuasive, frankly. They seem to be winning a lot of these conversations. They seem to be making a lot more sense than their critics. And I think, you know, at that point, it might have been just that idea that, that banks don't lend out other people's money, but create money out of sort of, you know, sweet generous whenever they make loans. That was probably the first thing that broke something in my head for me, this recognition that there was a kind of printing press that was always in operation, not only in the public sphere, which we had to be very careful about, but perhaps most egregiously, private credit was doing the same thing with absolutely no discussion. And that fit with a sense of politics in general, which is, you know, the minute, uh, the old line that that law is uh, kind to the rich and just to the poor, you know, that that we always have enough money to do certain things, but not others. And I I knew that in the context of war and, and, you know, that kind of stuff, but to realize that it was going on in plain sight with the entire system of private finance um, and nobody, nobody blinked an eye that there was new demand, new purchasing power, new sort of sources of claims on the economy. But the minute you talk about public claims, suddenly everybody's concerned about inflation and and sort of quantity-based restrictions and discipline. I think that hypocrisy was what really, really kind of lit a fire under me initially. Let's expand on that a little bit then. What is the general uh, framework that is MMT? How does it contrast to classical economics? And what are some of the basic misapprehensions that you feel most uh, laymen have about MMT or sort of the straw men that get thrown out about what MMT actually is? Yeah, well, you know, stop me if I'm if I hit the half hour mark, because there's a lot in that question. But I uh, know I'm joking. Feel free to interrupt. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I like to think about this stuff, first of all, kind of sociologically, you know, MMT is what MMT is do in a sense, right? They're just like in the legal world, legal realism was a movement. It's a documented historical phenomenon. But if you sort of took a snapshot in 1935 or something and asked 10 of the dominant legal realists, what is legal realism? You'd probably get 10 slightly different answers. And there is a common thread there. You can sort of superimpose them and start to see a common outline. But there isn't just one thing. And, and a lot of people have a problem with that because they're trying to pin it down. They say, give me the one article or the one book or something. And you're like, well, you know, give me, give me the one book on, on you know, <laughs> string theory or something. There might be a, a dominant book or something, but you're going to find other people that are going to disagree about things around the edges or what the priority should be or how you frame things. Um, so, so I like to start from that point, which is that this is a living, breathing intellectual movement and people are people. They're complex. They have multiple layers. That said, there is a common element. There is a set of sort of foundational principles and things. And I think one of them is that money isn't what, what the neoclassical sort of standard orthodoxy suggests, which is neutral and valueless and a side issue really to the real underlying system of production and real goods. Um, that old line, I think it was uh, Frank Hahn said, you know, the problem with most economics models is they don't have money at all in them. They just don't, it's just not there. Um, and that idea that you can sort of just superimpose it onto a, a, a model of, of real relations underneath is not true. The money is itself a site of, of power, of politics, of uh, investment, of change, of, of technological contestation and, um, 
you know, that, that idea that we have to take money seriously, I think, you know, as Schumpeter said, mm-hmm. monetary analysis should be the starting point. We have to think of everything through that lens in a monetary economy. Uh, and in some senses, the, the monetary layer is almost more real than the real layer in the sense that you can say what a real wage is. Well, it's the, the dollar wage adjusted for inflation. But inflation is itself a contested term that you will choose one metric Highly or another. Contested. And depending on which metric you choose, you might adjust that that dollar value to a different number. So it is, we can have 25 different theories of how to adjust that to get a real wage. But at some point, the one that's actually there that we're looking at is the dollar value. And then we apply you know, theory to it, et cetera. And in some sense, People like Hyman Minsky would say you can look at the entire financial economy as, as a series of balance sheets and, and numerical statements, not because the real economy underneath is not important, but because that's that's sort of in the way that we use words and words govern our actions, that, that the numbers govern the underlying uh, dynamics to a very large degree. So I think with MMT, it's first of all, it's denaturalizing money, and then it's trying to tell an alternative story. And, and the standard story is that some sort of public authority, it could be a modern nation state, it could be a religious uh, you know, authority, it could be a temple, it could be a warlord, it could be all sorts of things. It could be a democracy or a commune. Uh, it, could be, it could be a bunch of friends in a share house. We'll come up with some system where they use quantified value, right? It's not just as a the anthropologist David Graeber would say it's not just qualitative, I owe you one in a vague sense, but I owe you specifically X amount, and that can be alienated from me and my relationship to other people and, and be its own number that stands sort of as a number. Fungibility, um, essentially. Yeah, fungibility, alienability, commensurability, making different numbers equivalent, right? The the idea that, you know, you owe me a cow, I owe you three chickens, um, they're not exactly equal, but that's okay because it's in those differences that we still have bonds. It's like I buy you a round of drinks, you buy me a round of drinks at a slightly more expensive place, and that's okay because we're going to hang out again. But you and I paying exactly $85 is the end of something. It, it, it signals the finality of that relationship, and if you don't pay me exactly that much, we're going to have an issue. Right? That's a kind of different way to look at, I think, quantification of social power, social value, social obligations. Um, so the state or, or some public authority um, sets a unit of account, starts putting different things in in relation to each other. Three cows is worth exactly uh, three, three chickens is worth exactly one cow, which is worth exactly um, you know you killing my brother or exactly one pound of the crop harvest or whatever it is. And then we start to have a relative value metric that applies not only for goods and services but for social behavior. Right? Don't. <laughs> Don't kill your brother, right? Don't steal someone else's wife or, or, or something, you know? Don't, yeah, don't incentives uh, and disincentives, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Punishments, fines, all those kinds of things. And then uh, in order to provision the public authorities, in order to get resources back to the public authority, there have been different ways to do that over time. You know, one is you have people standing there with guns next to people who do backbreaking labor and you sort of hot stand over them. Another way is you say you owe me a certain amount of food or rubber or whatever it is every year. And if you don't bring that to me, then we'll come and burn your house down. But another way is to impose monetary obligations um, and say you have to pay those obligations, right? A tax or a fee or a fine. But it's not the act of, of paying the tax that's valuable. It's the act of what it takes to earn the dollars in the first place, earn the currency. And so that's, I think, one of the first big conceptual flips is we often think of paying the, the money as value, but it's often money as a thing moving around the underlying value. You know, you don't, you don't eat money, you eat food, but you buy food with money. So you acquire money to buy food. And you don't eat 
you know, that the state doesn't eat tax revenue. It's that what you have to do to earn tax revenue might be to sell stuff to the state or sell stuff to someone else, etc. Or if it's the case of a warlord, they might give out coins to all of the soldiers as payment and then say to the conquered population, you have to pay in taxes. So suddenly the conquered population goes to the soldiers and says, what do you need? You know, do you need food? Do you need brothel services or whatever it is? And that's how the monetary circuit gets set up. And now that's a pretty kind of violent hierarchical story. Um, and, and in m- many parts of history, that's sort of how it worked. But there are also versions of that we can tell that are more communitarian and democratic. And, you know, I used the example before of a share house, actually a colleague of mine uh, who, who was sort of, I met early in the MMT days, um, she lived in a share house where they had chores to do. To keep the house running, you need to do your chores. So they had essentially a chore system and they would assign different points to different chores, depending on sort of how unlikable they were or things like that. And they would agree collectively what those points roughly were. And then each person as part of their sort of inhabitation of the shared house would have to earn a certain number of points every month. And, you know, there's no tyrant there. There's there's a sort of self-governing democracy, but they are imposing an obligation on themselves, right? In, In the moment where they're working out those prices, they're putting on their collective governance hat. And then the moment when they're out earning it, they're in their individual hat. And so their story doesn't have to be tyrannical, doesn't have to be anti-democratic. It can also be um, communitarian, even if that's not historically a lot of the times that it's happened. Uh, But essentially the state imposes these obligations and then in forcing you to to acquire them or or incentivizing, depending on how you want to think of it, uh, they create a monetary production circuit where people will do things to earn the money and pay back to the public authority. The second layer is that once that exists, once people are starting to think in a common unit of account, once they have an instrument or or some sort of account value recorded somewhere, either in an object or in a, you know, in a spreadsheet somewhere that, uh, that they know other people will want because everybody lives under the same system, right? Death and taxes, death and taxes. There's nothing certain in life except death and taxes. Um, in that world, suddenly that instrument becomes a useful one also for private exchange, for private investment. And suddenly, you know, rather than using other things, you could use that as the basis for making payments between actors. So that that core public circuit gets augmented with private behavior, which is sort of opposite to how we think of it in a standard economic story. It's like a Robinson Crusoe island and three people come together and they start mutually trading and then an authority comes in. But the reality is most people grow up in social units. The social unit exists first and you have a place within it uh, rather than vice versa. Most of us aren't reforming societies out in the high seas every generation. Um, the other thing I think is important to note here, which is I would consider, I would say, a almost legal extension to, to the original MMT case. And I don't want to assume that every MMT economist, you know, would go that far. But I think most of them agree, which is we often talk about this in the context of taxes um, or in the case of maybe colonial, you know, um, or imperialism in the case of some sort of forced obligation. Uh, but in, in, a, in a modern you know, economy where you have private contracts and private property rights and uh, you know, accounting uh, conventions for, for business entities and limited liability corporations that have to be chartered uh, by the state, things like that, uh, in that world, uh, private actors incur all sorts of legal liability risk that is either enforced by the state or or sort of exists under the shadow of the state. Even if you never go to a courtroom, you're still using contract law as the basis of your 
your negotiations, or even if you never, even if you settle outside of the, the, the judge making a final decision, it's still the threat of what would happen if you went through the court system that shapes that commercial exchange or interaction. So I give examples. It's ultimately based on the monopoly of power by the state, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea that the, the, the we set what the law is, right? You as an individual can resist and enforce the, it. Yeah, you can resist the law when you cross the street against a red light. You can resist the law when you march with Martin Luther King. You can you can say I don't recognize this state's authority, like the Bundys or something, or or you know, or the Confederacy. Uh, and and states come and go. Public authorities come and go. Um, so there isn't this sort of one eternal. Mm-hmm sort of state above all of us there is it is itself a contestable malleable space but relative to individual actors or more importantly relative to private markets we don't have these underlying institutions of contract and property and tort and all these things accounting and and business organizations without some relationship to a more common public legal authority whether that's sovereigns or whatever else um and I think it's important there because often people hear, oh, taxes. They think MMT means you, you you create the value of money because you impose a tax. Well, what if we had no taxes? You know, what would happen then? And my answer is we'd still be in a web of legal obligations. Even if you had zero obligations today, can you really honestly say to yourself you have zero risk of incurring legal obligations today? You could walk down the street and someone could bump into you and fall over and the next thing you know you have a lawsuit for causing injury to them. Or you could go out into the middle of the bush prepay your property taxes for 100 years and try to live rogue. And again, somebody could come onto your land and fall over and say you didn't put a sign up and that's it or, or whatever else could happen. So to me, at least, we live in a, in, a, in a constant fog or web of legal liability risk and the risk is enough. It's almost like an electron cloud. You don't have to know where the electron is to know there's a probability that it's anywhere in the cloud at any point in time. So the, the sort of strong form, the concrete form, is, is the taxes drive money. The softer, more sort of contingent form is legal liability drives money. And legal liability can include those affirmatively imposed public obligations, but it can also include private obligations that exist because there is legal institutions mediating uh, private uh, and constituting private uh, market dynamics. Okay, uh, so from a, yeah. th- that, was, that was amazing. Um, just to sort of distill it, um, because I found it useful as I was sort of getting familiar with the mechanics to have uh, just sort of draw out the interaction between, for example, um, the Treasury and the Federal Reserve or other central banks and the, um, the private banking sector. Right. So maybe if you if you wouldn't mind, just like create that diagram for me. And, and importantly, what is the order of activity there in order to, to create money and or, you know, take money back? And start. how taxes relate as well, because this is one of the key differentiations that NMT has brought, at least to my understanding of public finances, that governments aren't paying their bills through our taxes, right? And, and so that breakage of that link, I think, is crucial for us to sort of make that leap forward in our understanding Agreed. of NMT. Yeah, maybe I'll take the last one first and then go into the se- into the first question because the sure. first one's a bit bigger. But yeah, on that taxpayer money point, I think once you, re- once you recognize that the point of collecting taxes isn't always to hold the tax receipts themselves, right, the tax revenue, the point of collecting taxes is to keep people in a monetary regime that you have the ability to influence or issue new dollars or even if you can't make more gold coins, you could change the value of the coins or eventually you start issuing paper money on top of the coins or whatever else it is, um, that, that 
taxes play an incredibly important function, both in terms of creating the demand, keeping people in that system, but also as a form of reflux, you're taking money back out, right? It's, it's deleting money that you put previously in circulation. Uh, and that deletion could include taking back the underlying real resources, whether that's lumps of metal in certain contexts or, you know, the kind of, I don't know if you ever had a kindergarten experiment where you go to see how paper gets recycled and they take all the old pieces of paper and they mulch it up and then they show you how they can kind of re-mulch it into new paper. Well, you know, you could, you could do that with the, the paper underlying paper money in theory. Um, but that's not really what taxes are for, right? When you pay in taxes, you're taking money out that you put in, um, in that respect. And so when we think of taxpayers as the source of money, what it does is center the people who have got the most in the first place to give back. And it centers them as the ones who create the value in the system. And what we see over history is that this creates an identity, a political identity called the taxpayer. And the taxpayer is usually coded. It's usually coded in, in a country like the United States. It's coded white. It's coded male. It's coded property owning. And, you know, you don't need to go far back in history to know who we're talking about when we say that. So when we say we don't want to hurt the taxpayer, what we're usually talking about there is we don't want to hurt the interests of the people that have run this damn thing since the beginning and keep running it. And there are legal historians like Camille Walsh and others who've looked at key moments in, for example, the desegregation of public schooling, where courts and others have weaponized that taxpayer identity to say, your taxes in this town shouldn't pay for the school for those kids in that tax in that town. And today, you know, why should my taxes fund your welfare, this kind of stuff. And so it creates a mentality that those with the most wealth and power are the ones that are basically keeping the state alive or financing or paying the most. Whereas in reality, of course, if you're, if you're poor or houseless or whatever else, you know, you're probably paying in a more real sense for this monetary system much more. Bill Gates doesn't feel a single thing if he gives up $1 billion out of $150 billion. But if you can't do anything, you know, you can't sleep anywhere because you've got no money because there's a monetary regime that's, that's enclosed the commons, you know, we don't have people able to hunt on the king's land anymore or something, then, then you're paying a lot to live under a monetary regime, even if your tax bill says $0 next to it. Um, and that's, I think, a really important flip in people's minds is to understand that your, your, your tax money does an important thing in keeping the money flowing back in and changing the distribution of wealth, but you are not the goose that lays the golden eggs and that in many respects we may be violently overtaxing certain people in lower income brackets and developing policy more broadly on the assumption that it needs to balance out or that if we spend X over here, but we tax Y over here, that's going to have an equivalent offsetting effect when in fact it may do nothing of the sort. So we get into this mentality of everything is about back of the envelope, numbers must add up calculations, and that's very destructive. Um, to go to your earlier question, though, the difference between money and banking or, or the Treasury and the Federal Reserve goes into, I think, what we can think of as the hierarchy of credit or the hierarchy of money. And, you know, people like Hyman Minsky and others talked a lot about this too. But basically, uh, the, the line that a lot of MMT has borrowed from Minsky is anyone can create money. The challenge is to get it accepted. Uh, and you can use the word credit there as, as a close substitute or, or almost equivalence. Um, but one way to think about that is credit is often extended and then can be uh, you can pay back something you owe against that person by giving back their credit. So if I say to someone, hey, I owe you, I owe you 10 bucks in the future. And then I do some separate favor for them and they owe me. Uh, now I, I owe them 10 bucks. They can say, well, let's just 
cancel it out. You owed me 10, I owed you 10, let's cancel it out. That kind of relationship can exist between private actors, even if they don't have access to any external source of public money. You could have five actors all offsetting credit and debts with each other, and that could could clear without any need of external money. Now, what you can't do there is necessarily choose a single unit of account. You're doing that in dollars. Even if it's your credit instruments, they're in dollars. If I issue an IOU $10, someone needed to come up with dollars before I could do that. And again, for that to be enforceable in an advanced modern economy, that means contracts, property, I need to have legal standing, all of that kind of stuff as well. Um, So you can have credit that can appear kind of anywhere where people are willing to accept it with each other. But real in, in, in practice, it's always embedded in these larger public legal social dynamics. Uh, but what one thing you can't do with private credit, of course, is pay your taxes, is pay the court, is pay the things that require an, an official money. And so as a result, that official money ends up having a unique value relative to those other systems of private credit. And given that often people will interact with the government or different agents or entities of the government or franchised sort of subordinates, much more than they will with any particular one private actor, that that often becomes the most useful, widely available form of money. People know that as long as they want their property rights and their contracts and all that stuff to exist, that the state will exist and they know the state's going to need these dollars. So if you have to trust my random IOU or, or the state's money as, as something that's likely to have enduring value, unless you're talking about a, a government in about to collapse or something or you're betting that it will, you're probably going to want to stick with that public money. Now, one thing we have done over time, and, and this has a lot of relationship to, I think, the early capacities of the modern state, the sort of real resource, the governance, the institutional administrative capacities, we have franchised or outsourced a lot of that money creation role to private banks. And it's a sort of public-private partnership. It's almost like the original neoliberalism going back 700 years. But the idea is that these these banks often have a capacity to process payments and transactions in much wider scope than we might have or the state might have as, as a single central entity. I mean, use the United States as a good example. If you have a very small federal government, it's only recently formed, it's only just starting to assert itself, right? These United States is still the term in the early 1800s. Um, and then you have a system of thousands and thousands of private commercial banks all around the country. It's almost like having little information processes. They can settle payments, they can communicate with each other. Suddenly, instead of everything having to go through DC or something, you know, you can have a, a much larger distributed network that settles amongst itself and only needs to tap the public authority at the edges, right, in, in the final analysis, in the settlement moment. But modern banks today, the, the, the liabilities they issue, the IOUs they issue, the debt that then serves as money for most of us in our bank account, it's not obviously gold bars in a, in, a, in a vault somewhere like a Harry Potter book. It's it's just a straight IOU that promises to pay either other bank money or or actual dollars. And what, what has happened over time is that those actors have had their IOUs essentially guaranteed by the state. So even though it's privately issued, it's got a little stamp in the corner that says FDIC insured, and we treat it as equivalent to, to regular public money because we know that the one-to-one convertibility there will stay alive. If we could press pause there for a second, because I, I think you touched on something important when you made the analogy with Harry Potter and the gold bars. 
which is the uh, exiting of the gold standard in the late 1970s. So I wonder if you might talk about that, because the creation of credit by banks has always been the norm throughout history. But the extent to which that has happened since uh, the exiting of the gold standard uh, I think has a, a an important role there. So I wonder if from my comment on that and, and, and sort of describe what has happened since then, uh, particularly as it pertains to banks and their role in, in uh, money creation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that there are, you know, what, what, there are different kinds of credit creating private actors over history. And, and the modern bank, I think, you know, ha, has a particular provenance, particular origins and maybe goldsmiths of England originally and tr- going from transferring individual gold coins uh, that, that was corresponding to a certain person, like your commemorative coin given by your grandmother, just to a general debt. They've got a chest of coins and you owe a claim against them. And that's a kind of different legal history. One is the legal history of bailment. Like if you give your coat to a dry cleaner, they don't own your coat versus you give your coins to the bank. You have a claim on them in general, but they own those coins. That's a, it's a different legal concept. Um, but then you kind of get the rise of the modern incorporated incorporation uh, corporation that the states charter uh, entities to serve public functions. In the early days, it would have been you know Harvard College or uh, the the British East India Company or the Panama Canal Company for specific purposes that the state doesn't feel like it has the resources to manage. Um, and banks were a very important part of that, particularly at the state level in the United States. Um, but uh, a lot of that at that time is still grounded into an international monetary regime where whatever you're doing domestically still is part of a larger international system or maybe built on monetary technologies that are common across regimes. And for a long time in history, gold was or, or silver were important sort of underlying resources out of which money was made. Now, you can go back to ancient Mesopotamia and you'll find examples of pure accounting-based monies. You'll find tokens out of clay. You'll find in Britain in the medieval period, tally sticks made out of wood where they break a piece of wood in half and they put a little notch on either side so you can correspond the issuer's part with the with the one out in circulation. It's almost like a public-private key encryption pair today. Um, so it wasn't always gold-based. There was always credit as well, but there was this layer where you would often settle usually with external actors outside of your social unit with gold. It's sort of like those um, those signs you probably might have seen in, you know, my grandparents' home and said, like, you know, friend, was it, friends come with, with love, everyone else bring cat money or something like that. I forget bring what cash, it is. Yeah. yeah, bring cash, right? You know, we, we, that idea of kind of like if you're inside our social system, we can use our internal money. Outside we have to use external monies, and gold was often one way between regimes in part because – you, you had that added collateral, right? The new Roman Empire comes in, the first thing he does is stamp his face on the coin or something like that. Um, this starts to, I think, really get under strain um, in, in the 19th century, but then uh, FDR in the US context suspends domestic convertibility in the 30s. And so for all intents and purposes, the United States is off the domestic gold standard um, by, by World War II and probably wouldn't have won World War II if it hadn't. Um, but the international regime after that is still based on the, uh, at least the fiction that the United States dollar will be always convertible on demand into gold. And the way that that was structured was every other country converts into U.S. dollars, U.S. dollar converts into gold. And in theory, that's a gold standard. But in practice, it was a U.S. dollar standard. And the minute the French really started getting annoyed about that and asking to see where the gold was, the United States said, actually, no, we're going to. We're going to change our mind on that and, and abandon the international convertibility 
um, uh, in, in the early 70s. And ironically, it was Paul Volcker, amongst others, at the Treasury at the time who, who led that transition. But I, I would say, really, the biggest shift probably came in the in the 30s, and then maybe even before that, with the 1860s and the rise of the greenback and the paper money movement, where there were legal debates, basically saying that the state's power to issue money uh, includes paper money as well as gold. Uh, and by the time the international dollar regime does break that convertibility, uh, in practice, it was already long gone, and the US dollar was sort of central. But I think, in some respects, it's an interesting moment because you, you're, you're sort of de not dematerializing because money is obviously still very material and I spend a lot of my time on monetary technology and fintech. It's obviously material. But you're, you're um, detethering the public money from any real-life referent point. And even if that referent point was one that you could change and, and you know bid up and bid down and there were very important legal debates going back to the 16th century saying if the sovereign gives you a, a contract in pounds and then they change the you know gold value of the pound, they still only have to pay you how many pounds they said. They don't owe you the real value. They owe you the nominal value. So that nominalism principle, I think, was in there for a long time already. But to me, it reminds me a little bit of this funny story, uh, at least funny to me, which is um, the international society that measures standards. So like what is a kilogram? What is a meter? What is uh, a lumen? What is uh, a you know, unit of, of, of the other things that we measure in science? They're all pretty much defined in relation to each other. Um, one kilogram is X of this, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but for a long period of time, the kilogram was the only one that was still in reference to a real thing in the world. Um, you know, before a foot was King George's foot and then a meter was the circumference of the earth, etc. Now they have more scientific uh, definitions. But for a long time, a kilogram referred to a, a big ball of platinum rhodium alloy that was underground in Paris. And it was a very heavy material, but they found that even that, that was a very stable alloy, was still leaking microns every year. The kilogram was getting lighter. Um, a kilogram is a kilogram, except when it's not kind of thing. And eventually they got rid of that and they said, we're going to just use a certain number of quadrillion atoms of, of whatever um, element. And that amount of atoms will be uh, a kilogram, not quadrillion, but, you know, billions or trillions. Uh, and so in, in a sense, all of our systems of measurement now are all devoid from any reference in the real world. We we define them in relation purely to each other. We kind There's of, no more ballast. That's right. We're going. We're up in. The, we're up in the stratosphere. You know, we're up in the stars now, kind of thing. And I think that's why that moment in the 1970s is so important for us today. Because at least you know, maybe until Ukraine or until the rise of Bitcoin, it didn't feel like we were going to go back to a gold standard in any time soon, or, or try to retether our money to something on the ground, that the idea that we were in this sort of purely nominal world was almost a, a, a um, not to put a teleology on history, not to say we were always getting there, but it's a, it's a sort of more internally coherent version of itself. Um, we, we've taken away the trappings of prior regimes. We've sort of made a clean break with the, those prior systems that might have believed something else was, was the basis of money. And that allows us to reconceptualize money from a different starting point uh, and, and see it maybe a little bit more clearly. And I think that MMT in that respect, you know, there's a reason that Warren Mosler was one of the first sort of MMT forefathers. First big paper was called soft currency economics, because this is a theory of, of soft currency first. And there are times in history where it interplays with hard currency or we can understand hard currency regimes through this framework. But I think that's definitely a claim is that, it is that it is that kind of 
legal accounting value quantification that is the more fundamental aspect of money. You can have money with gold or, or other standards. You can have it without, and those standards will maybe break in certain circumstances uh, or not. But what you can't have money without is is that kind of legal system and the nominal valuation. Okay, so without the reserve system, like we going back to the gold standard, um, each dollar was backed by a certain amount of gold. In theory, so we, in theory, in theory, in theory. Yeah. So as long as you never look, it's definitely in the vault. It's like Schrodinger's gold, right? As long as you never ask for it, it's there, right? Right, right. It was sort of generally accepted. Everybody sort of, sort of played as though, as if, right? Um, which we which no when, longer. Which when the United States have nuclear weapons and owns the United Nations and things, maybe you have other reasons to play along rather than just believing it on face. I think that's an important geopolitical context for that Bretton Woods moment. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. For sure. No, no, fair enough. So it was in theory sort of tethered or anchored. Um, and there was constraints on the number of units of, of a currency that could be created because it needed to then go back to a number of ounces of gold where we broke that relationship explicitly in the thirties and again in the seventies. And so I guess the question that's begged then is what are the constraints on the number of units of money that, that can be created and, and move into circulation? Yeah. And I think it's important to note that even when that gold standard was there, first of all, as I said, sovereigns could adjust it up and down when they, they wanted and things. It was a constraint on paper, but not necessarily a practical constraint. And they did so. Yeah. And they exactly. did so yeah. regularly, yeah. but also yeah. that that system of private credit that I started with, exists on top of that, right? If you have seven people and they all issue a private IOU and they all offset each other, nobody needs to have any gold and you could do that at mass scale. And so if you're the US government and every time you issue a dollar bill, you need to sort of at least in theory have gold somewhere to back it. But if you charter a bunch of commercial banks who are basically quasi-public actors anyway and they issue bank deposits, those bank deposits don't have to have a one-to-one backing with gold. So yeah. even if the even if the base layer of the hierarchy or the top of the hierarchy, depending how you want to look at it, even if that layer has some, in theory, tethering to gold, the actual whole monetary you know, ecosystem doesn't necessarily have to. No, there's always no constraints. Yeah, the, argue, the argument, though, I think that, that some would bring to bear on that is that the constraints for private sector creation of credit was the profit motive, right? Yes, like, yes. So, yes. So, so, so there was a constraint. It wasn't explicitly backed by any sort of uh, reserve asset that was convertible into a fixed number of units, but the profit motive constrained the ability for or the the likelihood for banks to create money in the form of credit, right? So yeah. when you then untether and, uh, real money, like money that the government issues. Let's say currency, maybe for clarity. Currency, sure, yeah. currency. Um, the government doesn't have the same constraints from the perspective of, the, of profit motives, right? So, so how should how should citizens think about how governments are constrained now that they're not actually physically constrained in the amount of currency that they can issue because it doesn't need to be converted into any fixed quantity. And, and how does that differ from how neoclassical economics thinks? Because I think this is key. A, a lot of us in finance have this sort of classical economics background or at least general understanding. And I think it's key for us to make the distinctions and, and get on the same page here. Agreed. 
Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I think the first thing is, you know, when you said uh, it's constrained by profit, which I agree with, but it's important. It's not constrained by profit ex post, right? It's not that everything has to have been proved to have been profitable before it would have happened in the first oh, place. Yeah. It's not some time loop. It's the yeah. ex ante application of profit. That's Absolutely. right. And and one of the things that someone like Hyman Minsky spent a lot of time talking about is those financial speculators or those financial investors can be highly irrational and self-reinforcing that you think it's going to be profitable because it's generally profitable or others think it's going to be profitable. And so what you actually can have is that private credit system not constraining itself, but spiraling out of control to these moments of crash, where in those moments of crash, it takes a public bailout to essentially reset the system. And so it's not that you had a kind of hard money base and then this sort of bubbling private credit that, that had a limit. It never really kind of tipped over the top of the saucepan. It was that you had this ongoing kind of self-reinforcing self cycle. Yes. Yeah, periods yeah. of exuberance and crises, crash, boom, crash, boom. And that was itself a source of ongoing instability, asset price inflation, all that kind of stuff. But to go to your question, um, there's the other part that I didn't mention is that, of course, states were not running balanced budgets the whole time. They were also issuing debt and debt promised something different than currency, which is why I made that distinction just then. If you're holding currency, then you need as much gold in the vault. If you're issuing uh, a 30 year bonds, then you only theoretically need the currency when it comes due in the future. And if a larger and larger share of public money defined more broadly to include government debt and government currency. If a larger and larger share of the public money is in the form of debt that doesn't promise convertibility, then even under a gold standard regime, you can maybe run quite large deficits. That your, your constraints are not the constraints of gold per se. That's true, but under that type of regime, a person could legitimately claim that all borrowing was you know, some people sort of say we're borrowing from the future or this is a liability for our children or that sort of thing. And yeah, under I a, yeah, under I a standard that. that you might be able to sort of quasi legitimately make that claim, right? You cannot. No, you definitely can't make that claim. Yeah. And the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting to that point. So thank you for bearing with me. But yeah, the, no the, the, the government debt in that moment is another way around the, the sort of fiction of the hard constraint of gold. It creates its own problems because then you need a debt market. You need people to buy it. You need to offer interest. And if you're not providing the interest to the private sector, you need a central bank behind it to buy up the interest. So there's an arbitrage opportunity where you buy it from the fiscal authority, from the treasury, and then the central bank buys it on the back end, which is sort of maybe what you were getting at earlier. We often think of them as separate rather than as the left and the right hand of a larger entity. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, going off the gold standard essentially meant that from, from, from now we needed a new theory of restraint, whether or not that theory matched reality, we need a th theory of discipline. And what MMT proposes, and I think the last few years have really validated this, is that the true constraint is what's undesirable from a public policy perspective, that is to say, usually undesirable levels of inflation or currency devaluation, right? foreign exchange uh, devaluation or uh, 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 internal price pressure. Now, what the neoclassical story would say is anytime you print more money and it's not accompanied by, you know, production, there's going to be inflation. So you, that's not a panacea. It's not a, uh, a, you know, golden egg laid by the goose. It's not a free lunch. They, 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 we're still under scarce resource constraints. And I think what MMT would say is in, there is a speed limit. There is a sort of real resource capacity as we experience in the middle of a massive pandemic and supply chain crunch. And at a certain point, if you need more masks, you have to be actually making more masks. But I think the other thing they would say is if you look at the history, particularly the last few centuries, that 
we have a been operating mostly below our potential it was really only arguably maybe world war ii where we really put pedal to the metal to produce as much as we could squeeze every drop of productivity out of the whole economy and we had a completely different kind of economy we doubled real output in six years we created a thirty-five thousand planes out of nowhere in a decade or less right we did things that were considered unfathomable but in addition to being generally below our potential, as that's that's the default, not an exception. Neoclassical economics would say we all of our models presume full employment, and then we add some frictions around it. The other part is that they would say that the place where that inflation comes from is from the quote-unquote money supply, which is usually focused on the government, not the credit system, not the banks, not the shadow banks, not you and I making mutual credit obligations that actually increase you know, overall purchasing power in the economy relative to otherwise. And that, I think, is a really huge difference that MMT is trying to emphasize, that, yes, public money and fiscal spending is really important, but also it's only one source of demand in the whole economy. If you pumped a bunch of money in and people used it to pay debts they already owed, the people who hold the debts have already got an asset. They've already got the debt. They would just be replacing the debt with money. They, it wouldn't change their wealth. Or if, they, if that money went straight into people's savings and kept it under a mattress, it wouldn't do anything. Or if that was happening at the same time as you were constraining private credit, that there might actually be an offset there that would be more than sufficient to not cause any inflation. So that kind of crude quantity theory that the way that we're keeping inflation at bay is not having too many you know, units out there gets very complicated very quickly once you start questioning what is actually a unit that counts here. Um, and the example that I give here, there's two examples. One is um, if, if we wanted to build a school, public school, um, you know, in Nevada, and uh, it's going to take laborers, it's going to take bricks, it's going to take electrical engineering, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and if there are shortages in those, then putting a little bit more pressure on that market might cause prices to increase depending on how you structure it. Maybe you do rationing instead or something else, uh, or maybe you increase production through industrial planning. But if there is a certain amount and you're laying more claims on it and that gets reflected in the prices, then prices may go up there. But that's exactly the same as if right next door uh, somebody wants to build a casino that's also going to take bricks and electrical engineering and laborers. And how are they going to finance that? They're going to go get a bank loan and the bank is going to extend them credit. So suddenly you're talking about the real resource constraints of the economy then bank credit and public money have similar claims on that. Now, even just as a real-life experiment the last two years, how many, how many times have you probably heard, well, the problem is we, we did too much fiscal stimulus, right? We, gave, we helped those damn poor people too much. We gave them 1,200 whole dollars that they could have in the middle of a pandemic. And now they spent it on you know, all these things like food, which they really shouldn't have spent it on, and gas to get to work, which they really shouldn't have done. You know, We wanted them starving and stuck at home. And, and unfortunately, we were too nice to them. And now we're paying the price. How many of those people have looked out and said the problem is too much private bank lending was going? None, virtually none, basically none. And if we do talk about it that way, how do we talk about it? We talk about it in the sense of monetary conditions were too loose. Interest rates were too low. It was a bonanza for, for, low, uh, for people to, to invest. And the answer then, of course, is just to raise the interest rate, which is essentially making credit more expensive. It's like a carbon tax approach. Um, but if you understand, as you were saying before, that Treasury Fed interaction, that Treasury Central Bank interaction, Raising interest rates there is another way of saying paying more interest on government liabilities, government debt, 
and central bank reserves. Nowadays, the low, the short-term interest rate, how does the Fed set it usually? It just says the overnight rate we're paying on excess reserve balances has gone up. That's literally a fiscal subsidy. <laughs> if someone said, hey, I'm going to pay banks a big truck of cash every month, you'd say, hey, that sounds like a weird fiscal stimulus program, but all right. And then they say, hey, we're going to pay them interest on their reserve balance. You say, wow, that sounds like monetary policy. Thank God you kept that independent of fiscal policy. (laughs) So there's always this interest income channel that's happening at the same time on the public money side as the cost of credit side when you raise interest rates. Now, if we had said we're not going to raise interest rates because we don't want to have that contradictory effect, we're going to keep interest rates at zero, but we're going to tighten credit conditions by saying no more loans to fossil fuel companies, no more loans to this industry or you know, the leverage requirements on the banks are now doubled or the liquidity requirements for non-banks is now doubled. Everyone likes to joke about Apple holding all this money on their balance sheet and not knowing what to do with it. Well, one way you might constrain future business investment to leave more room for public spending would be just say more companies have to hold more money on their balance sheet as a liquidity buffer for uncertainty and risk. So there's all sorts of ways that you could constrain private credit, private spending that don't involve the, the carbon tax approach of interest rate adjustments, but we don't think about it that way. And so, okay. yeah, the neoclassical model will, will keep you in that realm. And I think MMT tries to get you to a much broader conception. There's more to money than public money. There's more to credit than interest rates. And there's more to inflation and prices than just the quantity of, of goods or services. Okay. So I think that's super important to recognize, right? That, that it's not just the government that has the capacity to create demand that exceeds supply, right? Mm-hmm. Under lots of different types of circumstances, the profit motive would incentivize the, the private sector to grant credit to to facilitate projects that would then have the same effect because you're you're you know pulling demand, you're increasing demand relative to supply or whatever, right? So so that's important to know. I don't think that that's what has happened though in the in the current no. uh, environment. Right. So I, I want to sort of move to this because I think MMT gets a lot of blame for the current inflationary impulse. And so, I, first of all, I want to go back to what was the economic framework in Washington when these um, policies were being considered in response to pandemic lockdowns, for example, right? So let's go back to mid-2020. Was the conversation in Washington Everybody embracing the the framework of MMT, and then how would MMT um, approach this problem? Or was there some, a completely different framework uh, at work, and all of the policies that were enacted were in the context of that framework? Right. So, is MMT even to blame here, or does it, like what role does it even play? First of all, yeah, and we, 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 I didn't get there, and when we first started saying what is MMT, because you know this is a mostly directed at people who deal with finance and business. But one of the other big parts of the MMT story is if you understand that the reason that people need to earn money is because they need to earn it to pay public authorities that force them to earn it in the first place. You know, there was a post-Keynesian sort of MMT-adjacent economist named Paul Davidson who used to say, uh, fish are never involuntarily unemployed. Um, they might be bored, but but unemployment is a monetary phenomenon. It's the act of looking for paid work in money and not being able to find it. So if you think about it that way, and there's one actor that makes, you know, the money, or at least the most important money, then unemployment is, is, a, is a policy choice. We could pay people not to, just like ignorance and illiteracy is a policy choice because we choose not to pay people to learn how to, you know, pay people to teach people how to read. Um, and 
I think it was Darwin who said, you know, if, if the sins if if the sins of man are not, you know, from nature, then uh, you know, if if the if the misery of man is not from nature but from humans, then you know, great great is our sin. And like, if, if unemployment is not some natural thing out there, but is because we've deliberately created, it, then it's a huge problem. And one of the things that MMT tries to do by helping people understand money is understanding that we can and should be demanding everybody at the bare minimum, bare minimum has the ability to earn money by giving their labor to, to not starve and not be poor and destitute. Um, so natural rate of unemployment in your mind is a travesty of a concept. Absolute travesty of a concept. It's used to justify keeping inflation balanced on the back of the unemployed on the theory that if the workers get too agitated, <laughs> then they'll ask for too many raises. And we're seeing that right now. We've had lowest, largest increases in the lower end of the wage spectrum in years. And what's everyone saying right now? Central bankers around the world are saying, the labor market is too tight, which is another way of saying you just throw some of these bastards out of work, which I find abhorrent, right? And they're saying that at the same time as the companies who set the prices, right? It's not the unions that set the prices. It's the companies are posting record profits. So you've got the labor share of income and you've got the profit share of income. The profit share is going through the roof and everyone's saying the problem is the labor share is too big. You know, shock, shock horror that they always find a way to blame the working class. But that idea that unemployment is something that is intrinsic to the MMT framework to understand how we can overcome it and understand how it's a monetary design is one that often gets lost in the standard story because the stuff about budgets and maybe secondarily the stuff about banking is much more sexy to most people who care about this stuff. You know, I don't normally read the Wall Street Journal care about working class power building anytime soon, but they do care about budgets. They do care about banking regulation. So that's how they understand MMT. So to your question in Congress, was anyone proposing a job guarantee? I mean, I know who was proposing because I worked with them to draft the bill. The Biden administration wasn't interested, right? They shut that down very early on. So we had millions of people unemployed and not saying that they should have all gone to work at work, but we could have employed them in jobs during the pandemic, including things remotely, including just paying them to stay at home, like idle, like a, you know, National Guard reserve. And we, we could have avoided the massive unemployment hits that happened at that point. Um, but certainly that wasn't in the mix at all. And so to your question, I think the reality is, first of all, you're much more optimistic than I am that there was any coherent framework going on in DC, you know, and they're sort of grabbing for whatever they can in the moment. But certainly I think there were enough people on the Democratic side that had learned the lesson from 2008 and 9 that pivoting to deficit reduction and all of that was a terrible mistake. It, it, it prolonged the anemic recovery. It was the wrong thing politically. It was tone deaf. It didn't help people. And they didn't want to make that mistake again. And MMT had been in their ear for a decade telling them that. There were people like Congressman John Yarmouth, who was the head of the House Budget Committee, and obviously Senator Bernie Sanders, who was the head of the Senate Budget Committee, who had Stephanie Kelton as his chief economist. And John Yarmouth was out there trumpeting Stephanie's book saying, it's because of this book that we're not having that terrible debate about running out of money. You know, there was a moment in 2009 where I think it was President Obama did a 60 Minutes interview and they said, are we out of money? He said, well, we're out of money right now. And, you know, that, that, that was the moment when my hope died for sure. You know, yes, we can. Apparently, no, we can't. And this time around, at least early on, and now, of course, you're hearing Biden tout balanced budgets again. But early on, I wrote an article that was in a sort of front page of The Nation magazine where Biden had said, you know, we will do whatever it takes with this crisis and the money will not come from you as a taxpayer, it will come from us at the Treasury. That was the, that was the framework at the beginning of this crisis. These $2 trillion, $3 trillion bills were passed without a price tag, without debates over pay-fors, and 
we've had the largest recovery of any major crisis in in, in over a century. I mean, we, ha- we we're dealing with other supply chain problems today. We're dealing with other problems. But we really need to take credit, I think, for for the fact that if you look at the recovery, it looks like this versus like this. This very slow ten year. No, that's true. But I mean, that's almost by definition, right? I mean, if you're if you're gonna the Kalecki equation and, and a variety of other identities say if, if you know if you're going to create deficits, you are going to create GDP growth, right? All Which things equal. We- you could have people could massively increase your savings rates, for example, or yeah. you're going to increase the the uh, deficits, and all that money is going to go to really rich people who don't have a marginal propensity to spend. There are ways to to create large deficits without creating a massive um, amplification of GDP. But all things equal, typically, if you're going to create deficits, it's going to create uh, GDP growth, right? Hang on a second. The The, the debt burden, how about the uh, Kenneth Rogoff and Carm Reinhardt? Has that been debunked to some extent? So this is the other part, right? Yeah, we, we, we haven't seen any interest rate pressure at all, right? We didn't, we, we ran those massive deficits and did the bond markets blink? No. There was a short blip in March where there was a treasury security market hiccup and then the Fed fixed it and that was it. But there was no pressure. In fact, it was the opposite. The more money you're spending in, it sits in the bank's banking system as reserves. So, in fact, it's putting downward pressure on the rest of the yield curve to get down to the the short-term rate in a sense. Um, so, yeah, that, that idea that we were borrowing a scarce amount from savers, which was sort of even people like Paul Krugman sort of say in the back end, you know, there, there is a loanable funds theory of, of all the money in the economy was just completely debunked. And the only reason we're even dealing with rate increased conversations today is why? Because the Fed is choosing to do it. That's it. If the Fed chose not to, it'd stay at zero as long as you want. So, yes, I think it was a huge repudiation of that loanable funds model. And um, what what Congress did, I think, was definitely learn some of the lessons of MMT that we, the constraints aren't that other stuff. But what they didn't learn is MMT saying you need to be really, A, investing in your production side, which means industrial planning. So that that article, in addition to saying Biden is right to say whatever it takes, but we should be dealing, if we want more soap, if we want more face mask stuff, we should be invoking the Defense Production Act tomorrow, which is how we actually won World War II. And they didn't, but they're doing it now. But also, if we are going to have this massive crunch of production, which we could have seen coming, we need to think about how to manage that in a way that doesn't result in people starving and not having the gas to go to work or whatever it is. And that could include, you know, making transport free, public food, all these kinds of things. You know, I, I know the idea of thinking of sort of single payer food sounds like some crazy communist thing, but they provided food programs in Britain during World War II and ration cards and things. And nutrition as at a national level was the best it's ever been since and before. Um, not to say that that's the only answer, but if we really wanted to have a recovery that didn't go too hot, that didn't also put all the burden on the poor and working class, we, we couldn't could have done that. We just didn't put that as a priority. And so MMT gets blamed for the success of deficits doing what they should, but also the failure of the Biden's administration's inflation regime not doing what it should, which is what we would have told you. We would have told you that that's not working, that you need these other tools. And we were saying it in lifetime. If you don't have a job guarantee, you don't have credit regulation, you're not dealing with corporate profiteering and price regulation, you're not dealing with antitrust, you're not dealing with industrial planning and bottleneck minimization, you're going to have price pressure. So in a sense, you know, it, I know it's always a cop-out to say MNT wasn't tried. Part of it was tried and it worked well. And the part that didn't work well was the part that wasn't tried. Yeah. So I think that's critical, right? I think what everybody perceives that, that 
MMT is about deficit spending. And at root, it, it kind of is, but it's not, it's not only deficit spending, right? It's the most all... important, maybe the most important policy intervention that comes from the framework, but it's not the whole framework. It's just that that's the one that most people hear because that's the part that matters right now. Like you can say, hey, environmental sustainability, and what most people are going to hear is less carbon. And that's very important, but it's not the only thing to environmental sustainability. It's just maybe the kind of most important one right now most of the time. And when it comes to even then, I think the other part, and I didn't mention this, is because MMT was trying to get people to understand a different way of looking at fiscal policy, that it wasn't about where do you get the money, it wasn't about balancing things with pay-fors, what MMT said is you can use fiscal policy to modulate inflation. If there's too much demand, you've spent too much, you can spend less, and that's a way to deal with inflation. And what people look around now and they say is, well, doesn't MMT say when there's too much inflation, we should, you know, retract, run smaller deficits? Well, they're not arguing for smaller deficits. They're hypocrites. They only like it when it's good and they never say it when it's bad. But the reality is that, as I just mentioned, there are other sources of demand and maybe there are good public policy reasons why going after that person that got 1200 bucks and saying, actually, we're gutting your social security check is not the best way of reducing demand right now. But also... If we are looking at inflation as something more than just the quantity of money or even the quantity of spending, there's also, as I said, you know, corporate profiteering, bottlenecks, all that stuff. If we, if we need to understand inflation as a much more multivariate thing, then if this is not the kind of inflation that is coming from just too much spending in general, then that's not the kind of inflation best de- addressed with less spending in general. And so it's not a matter of hiding the ball. If there was a, if we'd spent too much in general from from fiscal policy, and that was the best way to deal with inflation right now, I'd put my hand up and support it. I don't think that is the best way to deal with this inflation, and I don't think that you, you know, making the average person poorer is going to do anything about the semiconductor shortage in China, um, or, or or things like that. So it's important to note that fiscal policy from MMT framework can be an inflation demand management tool, but is not the only one and is not the only axiomatic one that MMT recommends in a moment like this. Rohan, I, I, you said something about a minute ago that drove bells in my mind. So I, I want to address that. I want to put on that thread. You talked about some of the other components of MMT and how they are important in, in sort of creating the, the, the proper framework. And one of them was price regulation. And I was listening to a podcast uh, earlier this week about how the Great Depression was actually prolonged to some extent because of some of Roosevelt's uh, policies in the 1930s about price controls. So I wonder if you might explain a little bit what you mean by price regulation and what are some of the uh, myths or misunderstandings that might exist and what you believe would be the proper way to go about it. Thanks. Yeah, I I think often there's a tendency to approach this, particularly for people coming from from the sort of business side, using that standard econ framework where there's like markets and then there's the government that intervenes on top, right? It's that same myth that in the beginning was the private sector and then the government came in and taxed some stuff away rather than understanding money is always stemming out of public governance and public regulation in general. Um, And so the idea of price controls sounds like it's in opposition to the free market. Now, I don't, you know, I'm not a big free market guy, but even I can understand the the implicit messaging. Do you like freedom or do you like control? You know, who puts their hand up for control? But the reality is that price regulation is always going on everywhere. Um, To give a couple of examples, we don't let people sell babies. The price regulation of the baby market is at zero, right? (laughs) We have an unemployment 
regime for, for monetary policy that says if workers' wages are going up too high, that's a leading indicator that inflation is coming. So we have price regulation of workers' wages right now, just in a very terrible way. In another world, I would have been an intellectual property lawyer. And the entire system of copyright and patent is a form of price regulation because you are propping up the prices of intellectual goods through temporary monopolies. If you have uh, uh, NIMBY laws, which a lot of people who love to talk about free markets always also like the idea of telling their neighbor they can't build a second extension because it affects their property values, it starts to sound like really what you like when you say property rights is just your own wealth rather than actually property rights as a concept. But the idea that we have zoning laws at a city level is a form of, of price regulation. Um, and that there are all sorts through the economy. The idea there's some abstract natural price for things, I think, is is not true and, and, and largely a, a function of kind of the propagandizing of economics that thinks that everything can be de- described in a supply-demand curve, whereas in reality, even the internal logic of those systems breaks apart when you have multiple goods or when you have capital goods that, that can't be... Um, uh, can't be valued in according to marginal product because there is no such thing as a marginal product in that sense. And, you know, the neoclassical economists conceded that point in the intellectual debates in the 60s in the famous Cambridge capital debates, and then they just moved on and pretended it didn't happen. You know, someone said there's a huge gaping logic, logical flaw, and they said, oh, all right, well, we're still going to do it. And then everybody just forgot about it and moved on. So that idea that, that you can have... Um, you know, a sort of perfect market where every factor of production gets its marginal product, I think, is a myth. And if you if you abandon that, then this idea of kind of price regulation versus free markets goes away. It's just how are we going to regulate prices? How are we going to are, are price regulations a form of sort of resource allocation from yeah, the government-based basis? So, so why was it in this particular case they got the first step of MMT? And maybe this question is too early. And maybe we don't want to jump into why. So if you guys want to put this one on the back burner, but why did they get the first part right, but not the next part in the current sort of government regime? Just too early? Well, part of it is part of it is they didn't actually put any MMTs in positions of power, right? It's one thing to listen to what we say. And of course, everything we release is public. They can read it online and borrow it and they can blame us when they miss misrepresented or misinterpret it, but it wasn't like there was sort of six MMTs on the National Economic Council. It was, you know, the, it was Sanders and and um, uh, and Yarmouth in the House and the Senate, and obviously there are other politicians who are very friendly with MMTs behind closed doors, but it's not like we're being given the, the, the you know, Fed governorship and, and being able to, to make that speech from there. You know, you, you give me a majority on the Fed board, I'll, do, I'll get inflation done real quick, you know, but that's not, that's not how it works. And the same is the true of the, the Treasury and things. So in that respect, it was just a matter of them taking what they wanted and leaving what they didn't want. I think that's part of it. Another part is early on, it didn't necessarily look like a lot of these price pressures were going to come the way that they did. It looked like maybe somehow, shockingly, that, that we had kept enough production up around the edges. And then I think a combination of shortages and then shipping issues and other things really started to hit poorly. Um, and then part of it is also, I think, that there wasn't really a, a broader cultural commitment to fighting inflation that, that really could have done a lot of the work to educate people along the way. So, for example, um, a lot of the opinion polls right now, people think the economy is doing worse now than, you know, in, in 2009's recovery. It's it's crazy to think of, but that's how people experience it. And somebody was saying this the other day that sort of resonated with me is if you quit your job and get a better paying job because the job market is doing pretty well, you might consider that a personal win. You did that, right? If the price of gas goes up, they did that. <laughs> so the fact that your, your living conditions are better in some senses, you don't 
credit the whole economy for that. But if they're worse, you you do debit the economy for that um, or, or the, the stewards of the economy. Um, but I think part of it is also just we haven't actually been thinking creatively about inflation management because the assumption on the neoclassical side has been that the central bank can always deal with this by raising rates. The reason MMT even came on the conversation was why central bankers hit the zero lower bound and their models started failing. They said, we've run out of juice. We can't do anything. They started theorizing about going into negative interest rates. They went a little bit negative, but never really enough to sort of test that theory properly. And they said, we're out of juice. The fiscal authorities need to step in. And MMT provided the best explanation of why the fiscal authorities could do that without running into all of the problems of the Deficit Reduction Commission and borrowing from our grandchildren. But on the on the other side of it, the what happens if we run the economy too hot? We're still living in the shadow of Volcker. We're still living in this world that all you need to do is raise interest rates sufficiently high and you'll, you'll con- constrain any inflation. That part of the neoclassical model is still working. Now, the, the realities of it, as we're starting to experience right now, is if you do the Volcker thing, you have to be willing to hurt millions and millions of people both domestically and internationally. You have to cause a recession, you have to cause pain, you have to put farmers, put guns in their mouths, cause the global south to have decades of ongoing um, loss in output and, and living standards. And if you're not a sadist like he was, you know, may his soul rest in, in rotten hell, but if you aren't someone like that, then you have to come up with a different theory of how you can constrain inflation that isn't just cause a massive recession. And that's the challenge that central bankers are facing right now is that all their models and history say raise rates, rate, rate, up, up, up. But if you do that, you're going to cause so much pain that Biden's going to lose the election anyway. So why would he want that? So that's where MMT is saying, actually, you know, there was a whole other part of what we were talking about that you weren't willing to listen to that maybe maybe now is the time. They haven't haven't had the crisis in order to create the necessity to drive the change. The good news is we've still got we've still got ideas, right? We've still got solutions to this. And and don't worry, crises are coming. So when they have to change, I think they'll change to some degree. That seems to be the driving force. Anyway, why can't we have why can't we have much higher rates and still have a government that's willing to deficit spend, but spend on stuff like massive infrastructure projects or education, a, a massive uh, overhaul of the education system or a nursing reserves or like there's so many different the size of the debt is, I think, maybe the key component here, because there's so much debt in the system right now. I think if you raise rates to any meaningful degree, the way that you're saying might be net, might, yeah, might be warranted. 20% rates is a pretty big fiscal stimulus program to a certain group of people. That's one. The second thing is, as Minsky said, when you raise rates, you're not always constraining credit. You're only constraining certain kinds of creditworthy activities. And the ones that stay profitable are which ones? The ones with the most insanely high return expectations, which are usually the most risky, which today means what? Probably crypto, if we're being honest, right? I mean, where do you get 30% returns in a world of 20% interest rates? Probably. Took us an hour and 15 minutes to get to the C. Know, we're yeah, not there yet either. I'm not, we're not, yeah. we're not starting that conversation yet. I don't think we are. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> no, it's not in my pay grade today. No, but yeah, so so I think you, you end up in a world where high interest rates, A, have that perverse effect of the interest income channel, which in a world of very large amounts of public debt is much more salient than in a world of small amounts of public debt. One, you get the fact that it doesn't discourage all investment. It just pushes more investment into the higher risky speculative bracket. That's the stuff that stays alive. Yeah, we're going to have to differ on that. I mean, I think if anything, the the ultra low interest rate environment that we've had over the last decade has driven a record speculative fervor into those exact types of risky because 
a higher hurdle rate means that you actually have less latitude to take risk and less time in ter- to uh, for those risks to pay off, right? So if anything, higher rates is going to depress speculative fervor. It will slow down the rate of innovation potentially, but it will, uh, to Richard's point, it will deflate an overly financialized economy, right? And, and, and probably do a great deal to moderate something that is, I think, a major systemic and eventually going to be a major political uh, problem, which is, for example, asset prices are too high. And what's most salient? Housing prices, but also, you know, at virtually every other global asset price. And the downstream and so, effects, which is wealth inequality, which is essentially what you're getting us from a policy absolutely, perspective, the yes. unattainability of where we are with regards to that. Yeah. Now, yeah, I, I'm, I'm the first person who doesn't want to have more financial speculation. So I hope we can agree this is a good faith disagreement. That's kind of what I figured. With that. Yeah. That, right, that's so, why so I was shocking to position. So my, my view is twofold. One is those high rates are a safe interest return on existing asset holders. So if you're paying 20% return, or if you're setting interest rates to 20%, that means you're paying 20% return on what? Overnight bank reserves? That's a nice big profit for the financial sector. Everyone holding treasury securities, which is a nice big return for, again, institutional investors and the rich. So you are not you are not cutting off. Well, hold on. Institutional investors, which are, let's face it, and Social Security and Medicare, et cetera. These are the largest holders. Uh, of they, yeah, those, well, right? there's, there's one guy managing that pot on their behalf and taking how many percentage on top. There's a reason you become a billionaire at 30 managing, managing those funds yeah, yeah, and not fake, managing your own it. money. So, yeah, if you, want to, if you want to provide a guaranteed return to pensioners, I'm all for it. But you do not need to do that through the bond markets and through standard interest rates. You can just do that through by paying pensioners directly or by setting up a dedicated account at the Fed and paying that where there's no institutional intermediaries. We don't need to give them cuts all along the way. And of course, when you say that the Treasury market is primarily helping pensioners, there's a bunch of parasites gloming on the side of that that have nothing to do with the average person that are getting those returns as well. So do we really Those are compensated primarily on the level of AUM. So if you shrink total asset prices and shrink total collateral, then that the aggregate level of AUM goes down substantially, which means that those rentiers on the financial system are earning, you know, proportionally a lot less fees. But if you're talking about if you're talking about paying twenty percent interest on the safe assets, then you, you know maybe maybe your more speculative side of your portfolio is going down, but you're getting you're getting incredible returns on doing absolutely nothing. I guess what I'm saying is. The holders of treasury bonds, I think, as we've established, right, are Social Security, admittedly stuff like life insurance companies. Okay, they're big holders of, of especially longer duration uh, government bonds. But it's typically like it's pensions, it's it's corporate pensions, but it's primarily like government pensions. But I, I, I'm going to keep pushing back on this. It's the it's it's companies managing those pensions, and that's an important difference. It's not just the pension themselves. If you want to pay the pensioners, pay the pensioners. What you're paying in between are the money managers. They're the ones who are making. They're the ones who are getting super rich off those pension fund allocations. Yeah, I think we we can press pause on this because I think yeah, sure, sure. Okay. I, I actually think you, you, that's probably not exactly well conceived. But 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 either way. I, I, I think- my, my point is, if you're getting a safe return of 20% for doing nothing, for taking on no risk, and you've got a large pot of money right then, that is not 
stopping the people who've got a large pot of money from making a lot of return. The average person is not going to be getting 20% return on their checking account if they even have enough money to buy a single treasury bond or if they even have a pension. The people that are going to do that are the people who are wealthy enough to have a pension and then the people managing their money that are going to take 3% off an entire pot on that, not you know, not the individual. Well, it's also savers with savings accounts at banks and stuff. Like it's, Which is it's, who, again? It's mom, pa, kettle. But mom that, pa is still in in the global inequality terms. Mom pa that's got a, a share of the U.S. stock market is the rich, and they're going to yeah. be getting twenty percent returns. While I, the global I, south is completely screwed. If you look at what happened under Volcker, all of the people that have U.S. dollar denominated debts are crushed in high. Yes, but I'm not. I'm not talking about this in isolation. I'm talking about the just again. I'm just sort of yeah. brainstorming, but raising interest rates, and it doesn't need to be to twenty percent. You know, inflation is at eight, right? So let's raise it to eight or nine as an example, right? And I agree, that's just a, a question of magnitude. But let's, we could raise rates and at the same time, implement other types of fiscal policies that, for example, example support farmers, support teachers, support, um, you got to go, Mike, support yeah. um, educators, uh, building I, infrastructure, yeah. etc. Right. Like I, agree, I agree. You can do monetary, you yeah. I agree. You can do monetary contraction with fiscal easing, and they can offset each other. I agree with that. And actually, to your original point, when I was saying, you know, I'm I'm with you in not wanting financial speculation. I think the problem is that again, when if, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. There are much better ways to deal with financial speculation than raising rates all across the board, given these other negative effects. So I would be very very supportive of very restrictive financial conditions, going after all sorts of financial speculation that we just let run rampant over the last decade while keeping those rates low because I consider high rates to be themselves a tool of inequality, independent of what they do for credit markets. So how can we have tight financial conditions with low rates? Can we do that? Yes. And to the extent like that raising that, reserve requirements and stuff like that. Yeah, liquidity ratios, leverage ratios, capital requirements, just simply straight up quantitative and qualitative restrictions on entire industries, banning certain activities. There's all sorts of ways that we could do that. And people will say, what? It's draconian. You'll kill investment. And then you have exactly your response. Well, what if we supplement the loss of investment with public spending? So I'm, I'm actually in agree with you about everything other than that it's rates that are the way to deal with the last decade. I don't like the last decade of low rates as it stood. I just wouldn't deal with that by raising rates. I would have dealt with that by tightening everything around the rate regime. So in that respect, we're, we're in agreement. It's just that from my view, interest rates themselves have internal effects, particularly on the interest income channel and who has access to that, that have perverse incentives and also what it's doing for credit. Do we want to take a more, should we take a more active role in where we allocate credit? I, yes. I think the way to do that is being intentional about which markets we want to invest in and which ones we don't, rather than using a broad across the uh, a board increase in a single price. To me, that's the same market fundamentalism that leads you to think you can solve climate change with a carbon tax. Okay. On this, we're a hundred percent in agreement, right? So yeah. for example, don't raise the broad interest rate, raise reserves on mortgages or, yes. you know, yes. yeah. So, yeah. so tar and, and keep, keep the rates high. Yeah. Creation and, yeah, right. Keep the rates high for pensioners, keep them high for even mom and pop savers up to 300 grand or something, put all that up, put all that in the place. And then put everything else to zero because it might, my, my view risk-free return there is rentier income. Now there are certain actors that might deserve an income subsidy as a policy matter, but not everyone who happens to hold treasury securities. And we right, need to, right, to right. tell that difference because right now we're, we're putting mom and pop and the pensioner 
there's a hostage in front and there's a bunch of people getting a lot of free money behind it. And that's what I think the, the high rate thing is. But yeah, to your point, um, definitely low rates, the way that we have for the last decade is not okay. And that we can offset financial monetary tightening with fiscal easing. Another way to say that is maybe if we're going to deal with climate change, we need massive fiscal investment. Absolutely. And the, yeah. way to, the way to offset that without causing the inflation we're seeing right now is to tighten financial conditions. And so the problem is that the Fed and others in the neoclassical tradition have been shitting on credit controls for decades, saying it's the same as price controls, et cetera. And ironically, you know, it was, it was people, even Volcker said early on, we should have had more, but it, this was the big debate after World War II. In the 50s, the central banks were talking about credit regulation specifically, not just interest rates. Why? Because like us today, they had just stuffed <laughs> the, the private sector full of government debt to finance World War II. They knew that raising rates was going was gonna to have you know, potentially contradictory effects, and they were saying we have to have credit regulation, but a lot of that falls to the wayside, at least in the... Anglo context. Actually, one of my favorite central bank historians, a French uh, a historian named Eric Monet from the Bank of France, recently wrote a book called Controlling Credit, where he actually says that the history of direct credit regulation in the non-Anglophone European countries is quite vibrant all the way up till very recently, in part because they were under fixed exchange rate regimes, both Bretton Woods and then later with the Eurozone that meant raising rates was going to cause balance of payments issues. So they had to work out another way to do contractionary monetary. It had to be sort of a zero sum, right? If you're going to, if you're going to constrain in one area of the economy, you need to do to relax in another in order to, to keep the overall aggregates. Right. But also raising, raising rates in to, to, to constrain domestic demand might actually have perverse effects on your foreign, foreign financial flows. So if you wanted right. to constrain private credit, you would have to actually go and say, don't make more loans and things. And luckily in places like France, you know, the Dirigisme policy of industrial planning meant that that wasn't a, an ideological bridge too far, like it might've been in the in the Thatcher-Reagan uh, era. No doubt, for sure. So, Ron, why can't we get an infrastructure bill passed? Why can't we... Actually, let me broaden it. Why is all of the fiscal expansion driven to firehosing dollars into private bank accounts rather than into investing in the public commons? I mean, there's a number of things. First of all, I'd say like the scorched earth politics in, in Congress right now, it, there's no way out of this without, I think, something getting a lot worse, something breaking much more fundamentally. I mean, the January 6th coup is now legitimized and, you know, the Republicans saying we, if we'd had the votes, we wouldn't, wouldn't have let Biden have a nominee and all this kind of stuff. It's very clear that any sense of the common good beyond partisan politics is, is more than dead at this point. And the way the US structure is set up is, is almost sort of, architecturally unable to to deal with majoritarian politics. I come from a parliamentary system. You get in power, you do stuff. And then the other side gets into power, they try to unwind as much as they can, but they don't get to unwind everything. And that's where the progress comes with that kind of sweesawing back and forth. But you say to people here, why don't you exercise power? And what do they say? Well, they'll exercise power next time. Yes. Yes, that is, that is how it works. How it works. <laughs> Correct. So that's one part of it. I think another part is it's it's not, a, you know, it's I think not unrelated that the, the leadership of the Democratic Party in Congress, particularly and in the White House is about, you know, the average age is about 95 and they haven't changed the leadership for quite a while. And it's, I think, not also irrelevant that Nancy Pelosi's net worth is $100 million and that Biden comes from the, the state that was most favorite to the credit card industries and blah, 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 which is at the end of the day, if you can't 
show how you're going to give enough of a handout to the industries that, that are dominating both parties. What are you going to get? And, you know, it's sort of ironic, and I'll never say anything good about Donald Trump, but it's ironic that he was talking about an infrastructure bill as well, right? That both sides stand something to gain from getting this passed. Neither side stands to gain from letting the other side be the one to pass it or to pass it in such a way that it actually does what it is trying to do first and foremost, rather than giving, giving because the party in power handouts. would then get credit for, a, for the success of that project. Yeah. And, and, and that we are so starved for it, that that might be the spark that says, you know what, you like that taste. Now here's a little bit more of a taste, which is why stuff like the $2,000 checks, you know, when vote, vote in Georgia and we somehow, the Democrats somehow, you know, vote in two senators in Georgia on the basis of a promise to give everyone a $2,000 check. And what does the Democratic Party say? Oh, it's $1,200. I mean, come on. I mean, this is this is the kind of thing that makes nobody want to believe you're going to do anything. And when Biden, you know, gets elected on nothing will fundamentally change is his line. Uh, he's right. Nothing has fundamentally changed. And that's a real big problem. Now, Credit where it's due, he's put in some fantastic people in the antitrust space. I think that is a genuine shift, and we can tell the difference. It's so obvious. You can tell when there are people in power using that power to do stuff, and you can tell everybody else who isn't by the, the, the relative difference there. And the fact that, for example, my former advisor, Sally Omarova, my, my good friend and colleague, Mercer Baradaran, you know, were both rejected from the OCC nomination positions. You know, others, uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin just had to withdraw from from the Fed nomination, it, it's maybe easier to get it on the antitrust side, or at least it was done more effectively. And the attempt to get it on the financial regulation side is not, we are so far behind in part because the party on the Democratic side is living still under the shadow of Robert Rubin and Larry Summers and who's going out there now saying, again, the problem was we gave too much money to the working class, all that kind of stuff. To so, press pause, Rowan, you were mentioning, and it does feel more salient maybe in the US, this political brinkmanship and this polarization, but I'm from Brazil originally. This is happening in Brazil as well. Do you contend that this is maybe a an issue with presidentialism versus parliamentarism? And, and is that sort of how you see this as perhaps a way forward? Not that we're going to see parliamentarism in the U.S. anytime soon, but is that how you see? I, I wish it was that simple as well. I mean, obviously, as you know, Brazil has constitutionalized some of this fiscal discipline and the central bank independence stuff that is, that is a huge constraint. That's part of it. But I come from Australia where we have a large export-oriented economy, and that has allowed us to run either very small budget deficits or, or even budget surpluses uh, because we have inflows that are offsetting, you know, smaller deficits so that we're still investment domestically, which means that some of these more difficult conversations about the social value of deficits have not happened there. In, and then in the UK, you know, you have a little bit, but again, it's, it's sort of ironic. You've had the party switch on this where the Labour Party in trying to show it's fiscally responsible is now kind of criticising the Tories for being too spendthrift. Then you have, I think, Europe, which has got its own problem, which is the European Monetary Union, which they've been slowly trying to overcome that straitjacket for a while. Um, and then, you know, Japan, I think, is probably the closest, but it was always considered the example of monetary easing first. And every time it starts to do a little bit of fiscal stimulus, it slaps on a sales tax on the other side and kind of undermines it again. So I don't think it's only that. I think that's a unique aspect of the American moment because of all of the countries in the world that might actually break this paradigm, I think America was the one that could have done it. A, because it's the world reserve currency. A, B, because if any other smaller Western country tries to do it, America doesn't want it to happen. Well, good luck. It's a sort of only Nixon can go to China movement. And then C, I think, because the political organizing is just a lot more effective and powerful here. You know, there's a reason why 
Europeans sort of were inspired by the Green New Deal here. There's a reason why a lot of this stuff, you know, happened here first in the 30s and then went out to the rest of the world, etc. So I think it's American exceptionalism to some degree still captures the zeitgeist. Yeah, you have two, you have 200 nuclear bases around the world. If you say something's changing, it changes. If other countries say it changes, it doesn't. And it's a lot harder to say, hey, I'm I'm from small X country. We're being financially responsible, we're earning 15% deficits while the prevailing wisdom of all the economists who you've hired from Harvard and Yale were trained to think the opposite. So it's it's also intellectual. And as I said before, that that Anglo central bank monetary policy dominance regime, it really kind of stemmed from the UK, New York, you know, UK, US hegemony and then spread out access and spread out elsewhere. So if it doesn't start there, it's not going to start anywhere. Um, I want to go off on a quick tangent here and uh, another one of the myths that you hear around MMT and it's the uh, perhaps apocryphal uh, platinum coins. So I wonder if you might talk a little bit about them. Why is this part of the MMT conversation? Is there any merit to this and and, and would this change anything? Yeah, I mean, I became pretty famous as one of the big faces of that for a while uh, recently. And so, yeah, I think there's merit to it, but not not because we need it. I think it's very important to say that the MMT story doesn't need coins or anything. You can just spend normally. And whether you spend by issuing treasury debt or treasury securities that the Fed keeps the interest rate on at zero or very low, or whether you spend by by issuing new money is, is really much of a muchness, as the debate over QE, I think, has revealed over the last decade. Uh, you know, even people like Krugman and Coca Lakota will say money printing and debt spending is, is the same as long as the interest rate's roughly the same and there's a central bank backstopping it. Um, but that doesn't mean the optics and the culture are the same. And just like one of MMT's big intervention is to finally kind of package a lot of Keynesian ideas, plus some other stuff, but a lot of Keynesian ideas in a way that's actually broken through. I think one of the values of the, the, the trillion dollar coin, the mint the coin, is that it's a it's a it's a sort of gimmick. It's a symbol. It's something the average person can chuckle about. I I was on a podcast like two or three months ago with John Stewart about some of this stuff, and I remember it was him that pissed me off enough to write a whole big law review article about the legalities of the coin. Because when I was you know ten years ago when this was all happening, I looked into the law and I said, "Wow, this is a great." way to avoid a constitutional showdown right, where the Republicans are playing hardball to President Obama saying we're going to cause a debt default unless you, you know, negotiate on the budget on our terms. And there's sequestration, there's government workers being furloughed, people are not getting their paychecks. And the, the president is saying we might be forced to default in a way that really threatens the constitutional, you know, commitment to not question the public debt under the 14th Amendment. And I said, well, there's a law, you know, a colleague of mine, Carlos Mucha, the attorney, found this law and said, look, the law says they can make these coins. So they can never hit a debt default if, unless they want to. They could always spend more money. Now, you don't even need to use the coins if you can just run an overdraft, but they changed the law about the overdraft and the Treasury's account. So this is all kind of minutiae of fiscal budgetary operations. But this was the one hole that they didn't close. It's like the chink in Smaug's armor, you know, where you put the arrow in and take the dragon down. Um but in addition to it being a great legal loophole to avoid a cataclysmic crisis that is completely self-manufactured, there's no economics behind it. It was entirely political. Um, it's also a great teaching moment. You could also teach people about money, how it works. You know, that QE debate that you and I can probably follow, but the average person's eyes are glazing over unless they've got a finance background. We could understand that real quickly. We mint the coin and then it's only as inflationary as we pay interest on it or not. It's the same you know, Treasury debt, treasury coin, same thing. What's the difference? That's a really educational moment. But at the time, John Stewart said, well, 
this is crazy. You know, this is, this is, offends my, you know, I'm just a clown, but even this is too bridge too far for me. If we're going to do this, might as well print a quintillion or go home kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and to the point where he was arguing with Paul Krugman, he had Paul Krugman on for multiple segments. And, you know, I don't have much love for Paul Krugman, but relative to a clown, you assume maybe some deference on economics. And he was saying, no, I think you're wrong on this stuff. And uh, it, it sort of shocked me that the ideology of our, of our, of our age right, the, the sort of implicit assumptions that we can, can't question were so strong at that moment that Mr. Sensible, Reasonable, Open-Minded, I'm Just a Silly Clown thought that he could, you know, pull rank on Krugman in that moment. And 10 years fast forward and John Stewart's trying to talk to um, uh, uh, Tom Honig at the, at the uh, Kansas City Fed and saying, why can't we just print the money? If we can print it for COVID, if we can print it for QE, why can't we do it? And he's, he's giving a shitty waffly answer. You know, you don't understand reserve liabilities. It's the same thing. He said, why would we do it if it's the same thing? And he said, well, it's not the same thing because we're, we're, we're paying off the debt, right? <laughs> it wouldn't be the same thing to print it. And he said, I used to laugh at the trillion dollar coin, but now I think maybe we should just mint 10 of them. And that that's a really big shift in the social psyche, I think. You can see the vein popping out on Honig's neck, neck too, or head when he was... You can, you, you, can see, you can see the whole edifice is at stake. This is the crack yeah. in the dam. And yeah. so the coin to me is a gimmick, but the whole budget process is a goddamn gimmick. The debt ceiling is certainly a gimmick. And my research and others have shown the debt ceiling was originally intended to make it easier for the government to spend. You had 100 different debt authorizations for each spending commitment, and you compile them all under one consolidated you know, spending authority. It made it easier in times of crisis to, to move around monies and things. And now it's become a political football. And so using a gimmick to beat a gimmick, you know, it makes complete sense. And the other part of it is, in this day and age, money is so complex. It's all shadow banking and repos and, and crypto. I said it again. I know. I'm sorry. It's all this stuff that's so complicated to the average person. Um, but a coin, you know, you can take your five-year-old. Symbolism, to, pedagogical value. That's right. That's, that's right. And so it's, that's right. So you can take a five-year-old to the mint and they can hold it in their hand. And, you know, it's not that it's because the gold. It's tangible. It, yeah, yeah, but it's it's not tangible in the sense that it's reinforcing that gold standard, right? You, no one's going to believe that a coin this big made of platinum is worth a trillion dollars. It's tangible, but it's also nominal. And that dissonance actually is where the, where people's brain starts to work. How could this be worth a trillion dollars? Well, how can anything be worth a trillion dollars? It's not a trillion dollars of value in a piece of paper either, but we, you know, do cops and robbers and shoot each other and do terrible things to our loved ones for them. So clearly there's something going on. Um, so, yeah, I think the coin in many respects is an attempt to sort of reset the conversation on a different starting point. And the other part of it, this was my other research, and I'm not going to say the C word again, but as we move into the realm of digital money in general, the, the metaphor of the coin, I think, has a lot of value because account money is very important, but account money means there's someone in the middle. You have to ask for permission. They have to move the account ledger entries around. Coin is something you put in your pocket. You can move it around with you. It's private. In fact, even compared to paper money, there's not even a barcode on a coin. It's, it's, it's the most private form of money we have. It's a bearer instrument. So you hand it to someone else. They now own it. There's a lot of interesting things we can learn about coinage as we think about contemporary monetary issues, not because we're all going to start using pennies again, but because the coin as a monetary instrument has, has an interesting sort of set of features different from central bank accounts and commercial bank accounts and all this kind of stuff. So the segue to eCash here is just too easy. That's the segue. Perfect. I know. But, but I, I actually want to just press pause on that because if, I, if we don't talk about taxes, I'll kick myself later because this is, this is an area I really wanted to sort of yeah, yeah, I'd love to. have a chance to chat about. So 
I want to talk about taxes. What is the role of taxes under an MMT policy framework? And then I want to talk about income taxes versus tax on property, right? I've heard Warren Mosler say that the incentives are all wrong to be taxing income, that that Keynes always conceived of a tax system where we're taxing property. This is so antithetical to any um, conversation that's being had in any sort of normal political sphere. So I want what is your take on it? What is MMT's take on it? Taxes and property versus income. Yeah, a lot of us like um, a, a series of articles by Beardsley Rummel, most famous, the one being called Taxes for Revenue are Obsolete, which kind of leads with a pretty good conclusion. Um, but he was the lead. Yeah, that's right. He was he was president of the New York Fed for a while. He was also involved with some other big companies. And he's making this art- argument in favor of a pretty pro-business position against the corporate income tax. And I've actually written saying I think the corporate income tax is currently designed is bad, but obviously I wouldn't get rid of it and not replace it with something better. I'd oppose that. Um, but uh, he says that, you know, once you it happened, right? We did. He's talking about FDR going off the gold standard. He's saying it happened. We're off the gold standard. We have a central bank backstopping public debt. We're in it. We're in the modern money realm. He doesn't say it that way, but that's what he's he's saying. And he says in that realm, we should never mask the social purpose of taxes under the guise of raising revenue. Right? We don't need the money. There's already an infinity sign next to our bank account. So how many dollars do you need to add to infinity? before you have enough dollars to spend. And it's, you just, you, you give the points back to the bowling alley. They don't need them. They've got plenty of points, right? So the point is never to gain the revenue, but there are other important points. And he says there's four. One is to manage demand. If there's just too much demand in general. And, you know, again, I would qualify today. If there are more important ways, better ways to manage demand, maybe we don't use that even if it's on the list and we should be considering it. It's an important tool and contrary to a lot of what people think about MMT, we don't think that you wait for inflation to turn up and then hurriedly pass a, a new piece of law like late at night changing the tax rate. We would say plan in advance. Look at the likely impact of what your spending is. You can bake in taxes at that point, but they don't have to offset one-to-one or anything because if you spend a billion dollars on a milk program and then you tax a billion dollars from Bill Gates, that's not going to stop the price of milk from going up. We have to actually look at the spending propensities of the tax versus the spending if we want to know how they're going to interact. But also, in addition to doing that budgeting in advance with the CBO or other things, to give an agency like we do with a central bank, could be the Treasury, could be an independent fiscal agency, the power to adjust tax rates in live time in, in accordance with criteria, but essentially not having to go back to Congress each time, not because we're taking that power away from Congress, but because since the 30s, we've lived in an administrative state where delegating day-to-day decisions for complex actions to agencies is the way that we do most things. So we can have demand management as a sort of automatic fiscal stabilizing tool, have it according to predetermined criteria. And here's an example of being creative about this, because it's not always just about the dollars themselves. It can also be about the political economy and the sociology. If I said uh, for every week that there's inflation, uh, we're going to raise a wealth tax on people earning over two billion, uh, people with wealth over a billion dollars by one percent a week, and we're going to. Do you know how long inflation is going to last after that? Not very long, in my opinion, because suddenly every billionaire in the world is is suddenly a committed inflation fighter and is going to be thinking of every possible constructive solution that they can to help manage inflation, right? That's not because we're collecting the money. It's because we're using the tax power there to force com- people to change their own incentives to deal with inflation. If we said every time inflation is above 5%, we're going to reduce the corporate profit share by two percentage points. 
again, I think you'd find a lot of corporations will find they don't really that interest in raising prices anymore. So there's all kinds of ways you can use that. The other part is if the goal is not to collect revenue. Oh, sorry. The second of the, the list of four reasons you use tax is to uh, affect the redistribution of wealth and income. So people are too damn rich. And so far right now, so much I think of the Democratic Party, who I would say is the only party that even nominally cares about redistribution of wealth uh, or distribution of wealth, uh, w- has been, I think, fighting a losing battle against the ghost of Art Laffer Curve, <laughs> of the Art Laffer Curve since the 80s. And, of course, the Art Laffer Curve is not necessarily good economics, but it's great pol- politics, which is you can, t- you can sell this to the average people literally on a napkin that if you tax zero, you get zero revenue. If you tax 100%, you get zero revenue. So the optimal level is somewhere between them. The answer is probably a little bit lower than we thought it was, right? But what if the point isn't to maximize revenue? What if the point is to make them less rich? Suddenly that 100% line over here is still looking pretty good. Maybe 200%, actually. Fuck them, maybe 1,000%, right? Suddenly that Aunt Laffer idea that you can't tax the rich too much because they're actually the goose that lays the golden egg, and the golden egg in this situation is the tax revenue you need for your spending programs or your bleeding heart welfare programs. We don't need their money. Suddenly, the redistributed politics of taxation have taken on a much different tone. Suddenly, you can say, how rich do we want to let people be? Not, not as an economic matter, but as a political social matter. Are billionaires so powerful they can corrode democracy by buying outcomes? If so, maybe as you know, Bernie Sanders' advisor says, every, every billionaire is a policy failure. Hang on, hang on. Let's let's press pause here. I I think we have tried this. Perhaps was it in the 1930s or 40s? When, when up, up until the 60s, I believe that the marginal income income rate, at least the top, is 91. Was it 91 percent. Okay. And, and how how many actually paid that tax? Because what ends up happening is that the rich have ways around paying these taxes through different kinds of structures and through. So yeah. at the end of the day, isn't this sort of a moot point? Well, it, it depends how you set that up, right? And this goes to the question of taxing income or wealth or other things. And here's an example I would say, if you want to be creative about it, uh, any person that doesn't declare assets over $1 billion has no property claims over them. So if I go and find your Cayman Islands account and I hack it and I take all your money, the U.S. government's going to be okay with that. In fact, maybe they'll actually support it. Maybe they'll even give you amnesty. Maybe, in fact, they'll give you the computer to help you do it. There's all sorts of ways that you can go after people who are trying to dodge taxes. Maybe what you do is you go to the ABA and you say that lawyers who help people hide the effective, you know, hide their taxes in such a way to change the effective tax rate are guilty of ethical violations. We, we, we don't These ha- loopholes tend to be legal, though. At the end of the day, as you yeah, no, pointed no. out, the members of Congress are rich and getting richer. So the incentives are definitely not there for anything of that sort to be implemented. We are a few dozen million pitchforks short of the kind of political change we need. And I think that's a starting (laughs) presumption here. But yeah, I mean, your your point is right. Powerful people don't like being held accountable. They'll do what they can. Now, still, do we think that the redistributed politics of today are stronger than they were in the Kennedy era? I'm not convinced. I'm not saying that the 91% tax rate meant that everyone's paying 91%, but we actually had wage compression then. We actually had a genuine populist politics of going after those people and understanding why that wealth was prima facie bad. Whereas since the 80s, it's what? Bill Gates saying, I pay more taxes than anyone. You should be thanking me. Yeah, it's well, regressive today. I mean, yeah, yeah. A not only just the- yeah, not just the tax rate, but the, the the whole politics of taxation. These are the people that are saving us all with their tax money. You know, I mean, I, it's it's that old Oscar Wilde line: the poor shouldn't be grateful for scraps from the table. They should be insolent and disobedient and and, and annoyed that that's all they're offered. And I think in this situation, 
what the that Rummel idea that the point of taxes is not for revenue frees us of the Laffer curve spell that we've been under. The third point to your point about income versus uh, wealth taxes is to to change the relative uh, uh, valuation of uh, particular industries to subsidize certain things and not subsidize others. So, you know, Warren would say income taxes essentially discourage work. And I'm, I'm supportive of that up to a point. I think he maybe, you know, could, could add a little bit more nuance to that framework, but Certainly, I'd say anyone earning under 60 grand a year, maybe, or 50 grand a year, pay no taxes on their income. That's fine with me. Now, once you're talking about $5 million in income, I'm much less convinced that that has any direct proportion to people's labor contribution and much more to do with the, the unequal way that the labor market is structured or, or you know, people putting other forms of wealth in, in income. But certainly, I think... You know, if you really want to deal with redistributive politics of taxation, you need to be looking beyond individual categories, you know. I want to be able to look at a person, say, what what kind of living standard access to wealth do they have? Is that socially what we want? And if not, deal with that. Now, you know, not everyone's going to agree with my level there, but that's at least the right question. If you think that billionaires are great and should be able to do whatever they want, fine. Luckily, there's already a political party for you for that. There's two, in fact. So you're fine. But if you if you want to be able to make the case that we should be taxing people out the wazoo at that top level and that that's not going to cause a, you know, all the entrepreneurs to go on strike like Atlas Shrugged or be going to dry up our tax base so that we can't fund social security, then MMT is very important. there. And then the last point, and this is, I think, also an interesting contentious one is uh, you could call this the social security point, which is that the point of taxes is to um, is to isolate the cost of particular programs. So famously, FDR, when asked about his social security program that created payroll taxes, which are very regressive, right, one of the first ones that should go, said, yeah, you're right, it's not good economics, but it's good politics because people who paid into this system will never want to let it go, right? He's almost sort of subverting that taxpayer narrative by by flipping it around for average people. Suddenly, average people aren't the taxpayer, they're the social security contributor, and now they've got a vested interest in it. Now, I understand that as a short-term strategy, but I think the long-term impact is that we've been living on the knife edge of social security cuts forever as a result because it's underfunded and aging populations, et cetera. If we had just made social security funded under the general revenue budget like everything else, those those things wouldn't be able to be framed that way. Paul Ryan saying we should privatize this stuff and hand it over to those hedge fund managers making that 3% return wouldn't be able to say that that way. And so I, I think I understand the politics of localizing sort of programs that way. But ultimately, in my view, this is the same flaw as having really important public programs like education be and healthcare be delivered at the state level, which is it's a category error if you think it's that important to tie one hand behind your back and your ability to achieve it. If somebody said, hey, we should have national defense funded at the city government level, everyone would look at like you're insane correctly. Yet we do that for other very, very important social services that most people are in agreement should exist. So to me, you know, you you start with that principle of subsidiary, subsidiarity, right? as low as you can, closest to the people. But when you're talking about public money, the US dollar is issued in one place, and that's the place to start for, for spending commitments. Ron, to go back to your previous point, do you do you see that there could be, you know, any number of externalities, whether it's brain drains, capital drains, people moving outside? So the what are some of the downstream effects of that? taxation that we were talking about just now and 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 what kind of total impact might that have of of, of reduction of your your labor force or or your higher skilled workers or even the tax base itself 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Gerard Depardieu has been threatening to leave France every time a progressive <laughs> runs for president and talks about raising the tax rate there for decades. And, you know, so he's still French. It's not going to do anything. I thought that. he had moved to Russia at one yeah, point. Well, but I guess he's, yeah, maybe he's still there. Good yeah, rinse, yeah. right? And the point is, who fucking cares, right? But I think the reality is that actually an economy where where those people have the power to threaten to leave and everything is revolving around that, we should just call it what it is then. It's a billionaireocracy, right? But the reality is most people like being in America. They like a lot of people want to come here and work very hard. The whole country is built on immigrant labor and and, and work and interest from people outside, uh, amongst other things. So I, I'm not very worried that if we provided, you know, free healthcare, free education, guaranteed jobs, did industrial planning and, you know, improved our crumbling infrastructure, that that would cause the average person to want to leave. I think the thing that's probably going to cause everyone to want to leave is the civil war that's coming between forces that have been pitted against each other with austerity, you know? I mean, I'm being I'm being mildly hyperbolic, but not really. I mean, I'm in Oregon. People are occupying the state house with assault rifles and not even turning up to votes now. It's broken in a really fundamental way. We had 100 days of protesting in downtown and cops beating people over the head in, in, in Occupy and elsewhere. The idea that, what makes this country difficult to live in is that we don't give enough, you know, handouts to billionaires. I think it's just so tone deaf in this moment as to not even be worth taking seriously. Not, not that you are suggesting that, but just the reality is the, the, the proposals we're making are going to make lives better for people. It's a question of degree, I guess. At the end of the day, a lot of the points that you've raised are, are, are definitely coherent and would make sense, especially where we find ourselves now uh, in terms of wealth inequality and all of that. And I guess it's a, it's a question of uh, moving the dial and uh, adjusting the degree to which Yeah, I mean, we, the, we... The, pre- the president earns 400000 a year, at least in theory. Somehow Obama managed to leave a 50 millionaire despite having five when he came in. Um, if you can do that math better than me, let me know. Uh, but how many, how many nurses are, are worried about a tax rate of 95% on people earning $5 million or more? How many firefighters? How many public school teachers? How many... How many public interest lawyers that actually provide public defense services and stuff? There's a very small group of people that think that, the, that they're the ones keeping the entire world up that would be would be at risk if we were talking about the kinds of tax rates at the very top that I'm suggesting. But more importantly, if we're talking about providing public goods to a lot of people in general, it makes it easier to set up a business when you have to deal with health care. It makes it easier to have a business in San Francisco when you're not dealing with a homeless person crisis or you know, people getting priced out of the neighborhoods where they're teaching your kids in a school or something like that. So if, if, if the only consideration is anything that prevents me from earning as much money as I humanly can is anathema and I will go somewhere else, yeah, go to Canada, see if it's better. I mean, sure, go go to Malta if you want to live there. But like, the reality is, I don't think I don't think that for the majority of people that are actually keeping this country running, it's going to be an issue. Well, Canada will help them launder their money into real estate, so that might be actually be a good option. <laughs> Not anymore, um, right? Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that area that's been currently too cold to live in is going to look increasingly nice in the upcoming decades. Sadly, everyone's <laughs> going to move to move to the Arctic Circle. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so let's. We did segue to eCash earlier. I, I wanted to backtrack the taxes. I think we did a good job covering that. Thank you. Um, tell us a little bit about the eCash bills that you've been working on and, and what this means. Yeah, so I mean, starting maybe where we left off with the, with the conversation about the mint, you know, one of the most important things I think to start with with the eCash story is that this is not a CBDC, it's not a central bank digital currency, it is issued by the Treasury. So much of the conversation around public digital dollar, public digital currency right now has been framed through the lens of central bank digital currencies that I think it has really narrowed and corroded the discourse because 
what does the term central bank digital currency actually tell us? It doesn't tell us who it's issued for. doesn't tell you why it's being issued. doesn't tell you how it will work. The only thing it tells you is who's going to be issuing it. That is the central bank. So the central bank is saying, I don't know what we're doing yet, but all I know is I'm in charge. <laughs> I've come into the room. It's a complete chaos. We're going to work everything out, but I'm in charge. That's all I've decided. Second breath, next sentence. But of course, central banks have no experience in retail services. Of course, central banks have to deal with account-based AML KYC laws, know your customer money laundering laws. Of course, central banks historically partner with private banks, so we'll probably do that as well. So just by the very act of saying we're the ones going to make the decision, we've already created a profile of what this could look like, of what a central bank digital currency could look like. Now, can you fight that? Sure. I can say, I think you're not doing your job. I think you should do it better, just like you balancing inflation on the backs of the unemployed is bad. And central bankers have insulated themselves politically, legally, and socially enough that that's unlikely to go anywhere because what's the term? Central bank independence, the most vaunted thing in the world. You can't threaten that. If you threaten that, the economy collapses. Now, central bank independence has absolutely nothing to do with how you issue monetary instruments. It has to do with interest rates. It has to do with liquidity provisioning. It has nothing to do with paper currency or digital currency or bank accounts versus notes or wallets or anything else. But it will be the, the shield behind which central banks get to make decisions about this stuff, which to me at least is incredibly important for the public to be involved. This is a money is not just a thing for central bankers. It is a small C constitutional aspect of the entire world that we live in. And the shift to a digital centric public money is a hugely profound shift. And the public should have a say in that. Values should be represented. And, you know, call me crazy, but a central bank that has a notorious problem with race has a notorious anti-worker bias or who is comprised mostly of white men with macroeconomics degrees that have spent their lives doing statistical modeling of quantitative data may not actually be the best position actors to work out the fine balance between civil liberties and national security or to work out how to provide payment services to poor folks in, in, in banking deserts and things like that. We know that because they haven't done any of that at all. It's not in their interest. I haven't heard a single one of them talk about it. They, they, you won't they, hear anybody defending the guys that are stuck in the ivory tower, at least not. In no, this no, I, no, exactly. And so, so to me, at least it's that old idea of, you know, Henry, the, the line attributed to Henry Ford. If you ask, uh, if you ask the public what they wanted, they would have asked for a faster horse. Well, you ask a bunch of central bankers what digital technology can do and they'll say, oh, a slightly better bank account. And that's, that's the limit of their imagination. And then you say, well, you know, don't you think there are some important privacy issues? And they'll say, yeah, sure. Didn't you see the two lines in my paper where I said we have to care about privacy issues and then nothing else? I care. I wrote it in the paper. And you say, so does that mean when the NSA and the FBI call you and say that we want a backdoor, you're going to say no and you're going to stand up for that with the ACLU next to you in a press release? Does anyone believe that the <laughs> Chairman Powell is about to become a freedom fighter for privacy? I mean, come but would on. the treasury, but but would the treasury? I mean, no, the treasury won't either. But the treasury is the place where we can have the conversation about who should. Why? Because the treasury secretary serves at the pleasure of the president. The president's going to have to run an election. So unlike central bankers who only have to what get a macroeconomics degree and not rock the boat, and that's how they get appointed to the Fed. Uh, if you have to run for president, and hey, Edward Snowden and privacy and surveillance capitalism and all those things are on the agenda, then yeah. You don't just have to criticize a bunch of people with a seven-year, 12-year life you know, term. You can criticize somebody who then has to call the head of government and say, hey, this is looking like there's some pitchforks coming. This might be bad for your political prospects. So, yes, I don't think Janet Yellen, former chair of the Fed, is any more interested in eCash than, than, than Chef Powell, current chair of the Fed. But I do think the politics are fundamentally different. That's one. 
Two, if you actually took out all of that central bank, you know, brain rot that we've all been seeped in for the last five, 10 years and try to look at this objectively and you said, I want to issue something that works like cash. Put aside accounts for a minute. Accounts are great. I support accounts. Postal banking, Fed accounts, great. Public banking, put aside that for a second. If we want to have as part of the monetary ecosystem, because we've always had multiple forms of public money. We've had treasury securities for the big guys. We've had coins and notes in your pocket. We've had bank accounts. All the way back 5,000 years, we had accounts and tokens. If we want both. If it's a pluralistic thing we're trying to achieve, who should be the one to issue the, the, the cash-like instrument? It should be hardware, like notes and coins. It's the hardware itself that you have the security. It should be a bearer instrument. It should be direct to the public. It should be able to be used offline. It should be able to be used peer-to-peer. It should be anonymous. These are the features of cash. You want to preserve, not in a radical extreme new thing, but preserving all of the enjoyment of cash that we've had for thousands of years through this transition, a small C conservative defense of our existing freedoms. Which agency is the best one to do that? And I said, well, there's one agency that does coins and notes and prepaid debit cards right now. They do do things directly to the public. They do deal with things like financial crime and national security and foreign affairs. They do have a direct line to the political legitimacy of an elected representative. Well, that sounds pretty good. What's that called? Well, it's the Treasury. Shock horror. You know, big surprise. Reveal. It's not the Fed. Right? They've never had any interest in that. And even the Federal Reserve notes we use right now that say Federal Reserve at the top are printed by the Bureau of Engraving and Printing who incidentally also makes our passports, one of the other documents with hardware secured technology based into it. So if you were just going to look just as a matter of competency, as a matter of institutional appropriate, you know, allocation of of different roles, it's the treasury that should be issuing digital cash. Um, So so how far along are we? Well, the bill has come out, which is a hell of a lot further than we have been for the last decade. It's the only bill, as far as I know, in the whole world that centers this at the Treasury, not the Fed. And of course, the U.S. has a different monetary history than other places. As you said, in Brazil, they the, the central bank is constitutionally the only actor able to, to issue money. And other countries have done similar kinds of legal um, enshrining of central bank supremacy. Uh, but in the U.S., the Treasury never gave up its monetary power which is why the mint and the coin was also so you know, interesting because it's not interfering with central bank independence. It's using an existing latent power the Treasury has had for, for, for a very long time. The mint is, is, was around for a century before the Fed, still around. The Bureau of Engraving was around 50 years before the Fed. It's still around. The Bureau of the Fiscal Service that does prepaid debit cards is growing every year. It was responsible for a lot of those CARES Act prepaid cards that came out. They do store value cards for the military right now. So... We're a lot further than we were in the in the past, and um, the ACLU, for example, hasn't really taken a stance on, on money in, in very many years. They came out with a blog post saying, you know, if it's going to look like anything, it should look like this. We support it. Um, Coin Center, again, you know, crypto think tank on, on the libertarian side, says we don't normally support public-issued anything, but if there was going to be a government digital currency, it should look like this. Americans wow. for Financial Reform, one of the most progressive financial regulatory lobby groups on the Hill. Demand Progress, one of the most progressive tech advocacy groups founded by uh, Reddit founder Aaron Swartz, who are big instrumental in stopping Sodper and Pippa laws and things, are all behind, all endorsed the bill. Um we had, you know, write-ups in, in all of the major newspapers, actually maybe not Wall Street Journal, but pretty much everyone else, New York Times, um, Financial Times, I think, Bloomberg, you know, Wired Magazine did a great write-up on it. And you can see from them, those write-ups, that this is a new, this is a new perspective in this debate, that the central bankers have closed this debate off so much that even just raising this is revolutionary. I think it was Victor Hugo that said, 
in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act, right? That, that idea here. Or well. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, that, that idea of, oh, yeah, Victor Hugo has said nothing, nothing is, a, you know, nothing is un- as unstoppable as an idea whose time has come. Time has come, right. And, and again, we're dealing with this problem right now. Crypto is finding itself not as private as it thought it was. People are looking over at Ukraine and thinking, hey, maybe the ability to make unsensual payments is a good thing. <laughs> China has uh, issued its own sort of form of, of surveillance-based government digital currency, but even China has at very, very low denominations, much lower than I'd become but very low, issued a prepaid offline card that you can make peer-to-peer payments without having to central, go through central command. Um, so God forbid America is behind China on this. And only three days after or four days after the bill came out, the European Central Bank published a report saying they would look into a higher degree of privacy and anonymity for low-value currency transactions than they had been talking about up until now. So compared to, you know, six months ago where Chairman Powell and Janet Yellen are saying full anonymity is not possible, the fact that we have the chairman of the FinTech task force in the House Financial Services Committee proposing this. No, no radical extremist on the left is a moderate from Boston. Uh, and, and that kind of response is a pretty good start. Now, the next step is people go, is this even possible? Because I've been hearing all this stuff that we need a blockchain. You know, is this involved blockchain? There's no blockchain. There's no ledger at all. Wait, how does that work? And the answer is, well, we haven't even really talked about hardware secured models very much. We were in the 90s, but then we kind of moved away from them when a lot of the crypto heads realized that governments weren't interested at that point. It's sort of wrong to be right too soon in proposing something like this. And so they they said, well, the government won't do it, so we need to do it ourselves. And the way that we'll do it is um, we have to deal with not only decentralized payments, but also decentralized monetary issuance. If it's a government currency, the government can issue as much as is a matter of public policy. And the only technical thing you have to solve is the payment settlement side. But if you're talking about a privately issued currency, like, you know, the things that we're not going to talk about here, the B word and the the E word and things, then you need to, you need to solve the problem of, of decentralized monetary issuance as well as decentralized payments. And that gets you back into how can we have an apolitical, objective monetary policy? Oh, well, the gold standard, you know, and then suddenly you're in libertarian Austrian economics and and anybody who wants to care about privacy and digital money has to also suddenly become a gold bug or a crypto head. It's not, it's, it's, it's not the coalition you want to make the case for privacy on its own terms because most people want to use something like cash. They, don't, they like the US dollar. They're comfortable using it. They're happy to keep using it as long as it works. And interestingly, as one little historical tidbit, the last time this was being seriously debated in, in, in the federal government in the United States, I would say, was in the mid-90s, and there was a congressional hearing on the future of money uh, in 1995. Uh, I think it was the House Banking Committee at the time, or House Finance Committee, I forget. But uh, Philip Deal, who was at the time the director of the Mint, testified, and he said, we need to start looking at stored value cards as the sort of digital equivalent for coins. And as the actor that issues coins and cares about privacy and is at the treasury, we are best positioned to do it. So, in fact, this idea that it should be a treasury is a 25-year-old idea. And interestingly, who was Philip Deal? He was also the mint director that passed the platinum coin law. So he's my favorite <laughs> a public uh, you know, government agency head of, of recent memory because you know, these two issues, he was so far ahead of his time, reclaiming coinage power uh, and reclaiming uh, the privacy of cash. 
Uh, and so, you know, I think we're at the early stages of a brand new debate, but what we need to do is bring in some of the technical companies, show that this is viable. It's not just vaporware. It's not just a pie in the sky. It's not 10 years away. The technology is here now. We need to bring in larger groups of stakeholders. We need to start saying to crypto people, you might not like fiat currency, but you may like privacy. And this fight is one that we need to win for the privacy that you want too. So hold your nose on the fiat, but support us on the privacy. We need to get progressives to understand that this isn't a matter of giving a handout to money launderers or rich speculators and all that stuff. It's a matter of protecting vulnerable populations from surveillance and censorship, whether that's sex workers, marijuana businesses, political dissidents, whatever else. And we need average people to connect the dots between digital money and all of this, you know, Facebook surveillance state, Cambridge Analytica, Edward Snowden stuff, and to realize that it doesn't matter how much of the rest of the internet you keep private. If the money is surveilled, everything is surveilled. So do you expect this e-cash concept to have any impact on the sort of more traditional cryptocurrency ecosystem at all? Like does it crowd out Bitcoin or Ether or any of these other I wouldn't say crowds out Bitcoin or Ethereum because they are their own private currencies, their own unit of account, and they're, they're creating a whole ecosystems to do different things. I've got my own criticisms of those, but I don't need to, you know, it's not my fight today. Yep. Uh, but the I think what it does crowd out to an extent is stable coins. Um, and more importantly, I think it crowds out the moral high ground of these companies claiming that they're the most privacy respecting things out there. What people have realized, and, you know, everything from ransomware and others, the government likes people to think that, that this stuff is a lot more private than it is. So you use it. And then if they ever need to get after you, they can very easily. Mm -hmm. Um, But also I think it it helps us understand what we're talking about because, you know, Bitcoin said it was digital cash, but it's based on a ledger. The ledger is common. And actually when you read even the white paper, it says what we really mean is privacy along more the lines of a stock ledger. That's not the same as cash, right? Cash is something you hold in your pocket. You can give to someone else. It leaves no record anywhere. And even if you shield what goes on that ledger, even if you're using Zcash or Monero or something, it can be de-anonymized and traced. And if you really want to protect people's privacy, the best way to do that is not to collect the data at all. The best way is not a distributed ledger instead of a centralized ledger. It's no ledger at all. Are there additional risks you have to deal with that with regards to counterfeiting? Yes. Is any technology perfectly secure? No. Is that a problem we've been dealing with for 200 years? Yes. And last I checked, most crypto people aren't waking up every day worried about the the strength of the secret services anti-counterfeiting efforts. The reason they care about that is because when they're designing a private currency from scratch, it's really important for them to say that the quantity is fixed like gold. And so anything that could be counterfeited is off limits for them. And that's why anything that requires hardware secured alternatives to a ledger have just been DOA dead on arrival for the crypto conversation, but don't have to be for the public money conversation. And, you know, you, you want you want to say, hey, you get caught counterfeiting in serious numbers, and we'll really we'll really go hard after you. Maybe there'll be some people that do it, but not not that many. It's not like every person's going to be using counterfeiting money tomorrow. And if you want a good example of that, I think uh, uh, mm-hmm. even just the stuff with the uh, sh- streaming platforms. You know, we could everybody could still be torrenting movies and TV shows nowadays, most people don't want to do that because it's easier just to go along with with the legal option as long as it's made convincing, uh, convenient enough. It's and gotten cheap. It's gotten cheap enough. Yeah. And yeah, to your point about the, the, the ledger, it was, it was mostly, it, it was originally more about avoiding the double counting and the double spending than 
than anything uh, with with regards to privacy, or at least that's, that's right. It's it's a concession. It's a concession on privacy for the monetary theory integrity side. And luckily, coins and digital cash issued by the government don't have to make that trade off. And we have a much larger enforcement apparatus to ensure that the cost of trying to be a counterfeiter is going to be pretty you know low. Now, and the the other reality is anybody that thinks a <laughs> a ledger-based system can't be hacked in some way or other is also deluding themselves. At a certain point, you just need to hack the device or hack the wallet or, or, you know, put a keystroke tracker on somebody when they type in their private key. There are all sorts of ways that a private ledger system can be compromised as well. It's just that it's slightly different risk profile than with a hardware secured option. And up until now, there's been no interest in the hardware secured option. So one of the next steps is with this bill, because obviously nothing's passing anytime soon out of Congress anywhere, um, is to uh, is to basically signal to the tech companies and the, you know, the open source community, all that kind of stuff, that this is an area where they should be thinking about. They should be investing some some product development and that maybe on the back end there'd be some some money for them. There'd be some pilot grants they could get. They could position themselves as the new vendor. Um, interesting, I was just reading the other day or just refreshing my memory that uh, the, the company that provides the paper for paper money has been the same company for like 100 years. <laughs> doesn't want anyone in, getting into that business anytime soon. So, you know, whoever gets this contract could be a nice lucrative century-long one for your kids as well. So anyway, point is just that there's a whole bunch of ways in which just even starting this conversation this way has has moved the political needle more than, you know, 100 articles ever could. Uh, the next step will be seeing how much of a coalition we can get. But... One of the challenges is, I think, the moral clarity of it is it's hard to unhear. Once you hear that central bank digital currencies are not the only one, it's hard to unhear it. Once you hear mm-hmm. that they're not as private as they claim they are, it's hard to unhear it. Once you hear that Bitcoin is not actually cash or crypto is not actually cash-like, it's actually a, a slightly modified form of accounting money and that cash is something different, it's hard to unhear that. Even if you still don't agree with eCash on the other side, you at least know which side of the debate you're on and there is one. And that's going to be helpful because as we've seen with everything from judicial dissents on the Supreme Court to the whip soaring of political you know, movements in France and elsewhere, uh, a very, very considered radical idea plus some time and stuff getting worse can suddenly become inevitable. And so once this is out there, once people know it's there, we, we start building it. The next crisis moment, we don't let it go to waste and it could be thrust into the spotlight. All it's going to take is one big data breach, one big, you know, one more discovery that Pfizer courts are doing one more, you know, illegal thing that they claim they're not or whatever it is. And people might really, you know, start turning to this as an alternative when the um, we get close to the 11th hour of the CBDC conversation. Yeah. No, it's a super exciting initiative. Well, look, you've been unbelievably generous. It's for running up uh, two and a quarter hours now. And this is exactly the conversation that I was hoping to have with you, Rowan. So, <laughs> no, it's a pleasure. I haven't scratched the itch. Yeah. Level, so. yeah, no, it's yeah, an absolute yeah. pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. This was very illuminating. Um, Take it easy, where man. can people find you, Rowan? And, like, yeah, what, what are you working on and where can they find information about that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter, Ron Gray. Uh, RonGray.net is my website. You can you can see my profile at Wyoming University. I'm uh, involved with a nonprofit, the Modern Money Network, and my 501c4 public money action has been working on the eCash Act as well as other bills like the Stable Act, which regulates stable coins, the Public Banking Act, and others. So, yeah, any, any of those places you'll find us. Fantastic. Awesome. Um, for those listening, we have an interview coming out, which I'm also very excited about sometime in the next few days uh, with Auntie Ilmanen about his new book, uh, which was 100 
minute conversation, which was packed with really relevant, timely uh, information from, I think, one of the most insightful minds in investing in markets. So keep an eye out for that. Um, there will be no show next week. It's Good Friday. We're taking a week off. The next week will be Chris Abdelmissa. We're really excited for that. So tune in for that. Please hit the like button if you enjoyed this conversation. That helps us get other amazing guests like Rowan on the show and um, helps promote the show if, uh, if you think that what we're talking about is worthwhile. So thanks so much for tuning in today. Rowan, thanks so much for coming and for sharing. Richard, thanks for all your help. Have Thank a great you. weekend. Have a great weekend. Cue the music. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.